welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And thank you once again for joining us today. And just up here at the top, I would like to express uh, quite a bit of gratitude for the positive response we got to our recent episode on aspartame. But uh, I also want to note that you should not expect that again definitely anytime soon, probably ever. Uh, it was a close to six hour long episode, and it almost put us in the grave. And in fact, uh, that was just a hazing ritual. Uh, Lindsay is is the new co-host of the show. And uh, yeah, just, just wanted to see if she could tolerate that type of marathon recording session. And uh, she did. So barely, barely. Yeah. Uh, j- just as a little peek behind the scenes, we sat down to record it at what, like eight thirty or so. Yeah. And we finished. PM. At, yeah, yeah, like eight thirty p.m. And we finished at close to three a.m. Give yeah. or take. Um. Yeah. Not not doing that. Took again. one break and maybe about three hours in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I I do think that it's probably good. Um. Yeah. With with Eric and I previously. We had a rough idea of kind of length of outline to length of episode <laughs> ratio. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a calibration period uh, just to, to figure out how that works. Yeah. And I've I, never done this at all before. Yeah. That was my second podcast episode ever. Like, and I've never been on a podcast before, before doing this. So I tend to over prepare when I'm not comfortable yet with a medium and I certainly did that and I knew I was doing it and yet I couldn't stop myself and uh, we ended up with a six-hour episode but I feel like I you know I've proven to myself and maybe to the audience that I can do this (laughs) (laughs) and And, and uh, certainly to me as well I I hope to not do that again though yeah I mean just being completely transparent looking at the outline I thought that we were probably staring down about three or four hours. Yeah, I thought about four. Yeah. Like five and a half, six. Like that That honestly surprised me a lot as well. Yeah. But we did it. Uh, but yeah, all, all of which is to say uh, we certainly appreciate everyone who listened to the whole episode. Yeah. It was a lot of content. I thought it was good content. I like did it, too. it didn't drag. Yeah. Um, but yeah, don't, don't expect an episode of that length again anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really appreciate everyone who expressed their support for us, though, because, like, I really thought it would be kind of funny that it was a six-hour episode and that a couple people would really enjoy that, but I thought we likely had found everyone else's limits and that it was just not going to go over well at all, but the response has been really positive, and uh, I feel really proud of that. I do as well. So, uh, yeah, let's let's move on from that. Lindsay, what what has been on your mind recently? Do you do you have any recent bright spots? I think we I think we both have the same today. I think we do. And it's Love Island. Love Island, yes. So this is our first summer watching Love Island. Last summer we started the season, but ended up starting it like a couple months in so it just seemed too daunting to catch up for for people who don't know about love island it is a daily show so there are new episodes coming out every day for an entire summer so like 60 episodes total or something for a season and and two episodes some days yes the the new the new actual content from the villa but also after sun yes after sun and unseen bits 
But so it was our first summer watching Love Island. We've done it um, with the Hulu stream instead of doing the VPN. So we're like a week behind the UK, um, which is where it's filmed. And so I think that like yesterday or today was the day that like the winners were actually crowned. I I think it's the 31st. Okay. I I think it's Monday. But we're behind... Yeah, and so, so I'm very nervous about seeing a spoiler. Yeah, the the winners will be known when this episode comes out, but we won't know the winners until I believe next Friday. Hopefully. So if we can if we can avoid the spoilers. Yes. So if you are also a Love Island fan and you either watch it in the UK in real time or you use a VPN to watch it, uh this episode will drop before Lindsay and I know the winners. So please, please don't spoil yeah, it for us. Please save us. Yeah. But, but I, I guess like what I'll say, why I love Love Island is just the chaos of it. Mm-hmm. Because it is filmed and released every day, you see things in the show that have happened like maybe 12 hours before, mm-hmm. sometimes less than 12 hours before. It's almost in real time. And that just brings like such an interesting element to the show that other reality shows don't have. And there are also people being brought into the show, like new contestants, new Islanders, bombshells have entered the villa throughout the season. And those people have been watching the show at home waiting to come on. And so they know everything that's happened. They know more so than the other people who have been in there and kind of shut off from the whole internet. Mm -hmm. So it just is this really interesting dynamic. And it's like much more wholesome than I expected it to be. Like when I heard that everyone shares a bedroom, like all of the couples are in one giant bedroom. I was like, oh, that's a little raunchy. But it's actually, it's not. Like, it's just very sweet. I like it a lot. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like these these British lads and lasses are maybe much much more socially adjusted or just like less nasty than American reality contestants. Maybe so, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's very sweet. It's very cute. Who who are your who are your favorite couples in the home stretch? I think Ella and Tyreek should win. I agree. I think they've had the best story throughout. They, you know, they've had their ups and downs. They're a little bit toxic, but you know, they're in their early twenties. Actually, I think Tyreek is like twenty-six. Whatever. They're a little bit toxic, but he, it's his first like major relationship, and they're working stuff out. But they, those kids, like each other so much, and I just hope that the British public sees that. Yeah, I I hope so as well. Um, yeah, they they would also be my pick if I had a vote, but I don't because I think, well, one, we're not watching it in real time, and two, I think you, I think you need to have a British phone number to like text in your vote. Oh, um, maybe next year we should register a British phone number. If if we if <laughs> yeah if we go even further down this rabbit yes. hole, um, but yeah, no, I I don't know. I I also really like Whitney and Jess. Yeah, but. I don't, I mean, if if you're voting for, like, your favorite or, like, the strongest couple, mm-hmm. I don't think that, like, the Whitney Locken pairing has has quite as much sauce. Yes. Um, They're just a newer couple. Yeah. And Locken isn't as over the top as Tyreek. Yeah. And, and like, I, I still have questions about how into Jess Sammy is, I know. honestly. Um, but, yeah, whatever. For, for people who... Uh, 
who do also watch Love Island, uh, feel free to let <laughs> us know in the Facebook group or subreddit. Yeah, who are your favorites? Yeah, let, let us let us know what you think. And uh, yeah, for people who don't watch Love Island, I think we'll we'll cut it off there. Because yeah. I'm sure you don't care yeah. about any of this. Join us next summer. Yes. Um, all right. So yeah, let's let's go ahead and get into the episode. But before we do that, uh, just need to go through the standard plugs. First, if you listen to the show, you like the show, uh, go like, rate, and subscribe it. Or, or go like and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, click the subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're looking for some excellent coaching to meet your uh, training, nutrition goals, etc., uh, check out the Stronger by Science coaching program. A link to that will be in the show notes. If you're looking for great supplements for cheap, like creatine, for instance, uh, the topic of this episode, uh, check out BulkSupplements.com. Use the code SBSPOD at checkout for a 5% discount. Um, if you're looking for a great nutrition app to track supplements like creatine or more likely just your food, uh, check out MacroFactor. That is our nutrition app. Uh, if you're looking for a great research review to stay up to date on all of the relevant research being published, being pumped out these days, uh, check out MASS. That's Monthly Applications in Strength Sports. Um, if you would like to interact with us, like follow the show, join the communities, etc., banter about the episodes and just... Or Love Island. Or Love Island, yeah. Uh, check out the Stronger by Science Facebook group and subreddit. That's reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science or Stronger by Science Community on Facebook. Uh, if you'd like uh, breakdowns of uh, new research and studies sent to your inbox every other week on the off week of the podcasts, uh, subscribe to our newsletter. There will be a link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, yeah, that, that newsletter is primarily just content. We're not going to spam you with a bunch of sales links and whatnot. And finally, uh, I've mentioned this the last couple of episodes, but we're doing audio Q&As on the podcast now. Uh, we're, go we're going to do that for the first time in this episode. If you'd like to ask a question, uh, record an audio clip that is 60 seconds max and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. And if we like your question, we'll answer it on the show. Nice. All right, let's get into it. So uh, as you can see by looking at the episode title, this is an episode about creatine and some of the popular myths and misconceptions about creatine. So uh, just, as, just as a jumping off point, Lindsay, what, what do you know about creatine? Yeah. I think most of what I know has come from just like being around you and then reading content that we have published on Stronger by Science. It's not necessarily something I think I would have sought out if this weren't uh, my business, but I know that it's one of the most well-studied supplements. Um, I, I think like when I've asked you or like when Eric has talked about it in the past, People always say like the two best supplements for lifters are creatine and caffeine. Like those are the two things that have been studied the most and that have the clearest um, effective results. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know that. I know that it's particularly good for vegetarians and vegans. Like I've also heard you recommend it to our friends who don't eat meat because I think creatine is something that omnivores get some of in their diet and then if you don't eat meat you're not getting as much so you can have a better effect 
of taking creatine than the average omnivore. Um, in terms of like lifting, my understanding is that it increases the ability to gain muscle uh, and maybe helps with muscular endurance Mm -hmm. in the gym. I don't really know how that works though. Mm -hmm. I know we're going to get into that. Um, I've read it several times and it's just one of those things that I read it and my brain is just like, nope, we don't, we can't process this. Yeah. That's totally fair. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I also hear about it from macro factor users all the time in the groups because, um, I think we'll talk about this too, but People say that when they start taking creatine, they retain water quite a bit more. So their scale weight might go up in macro factor and they're afraid of like how that might impact their weight trend or their calorie recommendations. But um, my understanding is that it can make you bloated for a couple days and then it kind of levels out after that. Hmm. In terms of negative things, I've heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're going to talk about hair loss. That's like the main thing that I hear. And that's mainly just whenever we publish anything about creatine, 60% of the comments are people asking about hair loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I would have encountered that anywhere else. Yeah. Because uh, it is primarily men asking about hair loss. Um, I've also heard that it can cause like digestive issues at first. Like some people get diarrhea when they first start taking creatine and it just causes general tummy troubles for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, hmm. I personally have had um, issues with like creatinine levels at a doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people talking about like taking creatine and how that might impact creatinine. But I think those are two different things and creatinine levels are just elevated for lifters in general. Yeah. Um, Last thing, uh, this isn't as concrete, but I've also gotten the feeling that a lot of people, particularly people who aren't into lifting, kind of think creatine is a very intense thing, like an intense supplement to take. It's, It's only what the most hardcore people take and that it's kind of steroid adjacent yeah so i i I am actually going to talk about that a little bit when when going through the history of creatine okay um yeah so what what are um that's that's a lot honestly (laughs) yeah uh i'm i'm very impressed that you've that you've picked up that much just kind of through osmosis yeah as someone who doesn't take creatine and isn't like that interested in it but yeah if, if you're swimming in these waters and consuming fitness content it is hard to avoid just information about creatine just flowing over you. Yeah. Um, what What are some uh, What are some myths or misconceptions you've heard about creatine, or uh, at, at minimum, like ideas that you've seen floating around about it that you're not quite sure if they're true or not? Um, like you You mentioned, like people saying it's a steroid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned stuff about hair loss, which we're definitely going to get into on mm-hmm. the episode. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any just other little things along those lines that come to mind for you? Mm, I think hair loss is the biggest one. And then like acne and the digestive issues. I saw some stuff. I've seen some stuff about like it impacting sleep. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I don't know if these things are myths, though. Like, these are just things that I see people saying, and I haven't 
necessarily sought out more information to know if it's a myth because it doesn't really affect me. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, that that is that is totally fair. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. I okay. think so. Yeah, to to start with, I'm just going to go over uh, a little bit of the history of of creatine. Uh, but before I do that, I want to just briefly discuss kind of the, the purpose of this episode. Okay. So like you mentioned before, anytime we publish stuff about creatine, there are a lot of just very kind of stock common questions and comments we get in response. Um, and uh, there, there are a lot of like statements I see about creatine that people make very confidently that I think are based on on very understandable reasons that aren't quite true mm -hmm. so that that's some of the stuff i want to discuss uh but yeah we we recently published a research spotlight on creatine going over a recent meta-analysis looking at the relative impact of creatine on muscle growth we published that we got a lot of comments and questions and that that just kind of jogged my brain on a lot of this stuff yeah. and said oh well that that would make uh, a good podcast episode and also probably a, a good research spotlight as well. Uh, if you're listening to this, there's a pretty good chance that the research spotlight that hits your inbox next week will be covering uh, a, a lot of very similar ground. Because, nice. you know, a lot, a lot of people like to listen. A lot of people like to read. Uh, give the people what they want in both mediums. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people have this question. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's let's talk about the history a little bit. So creatine was first isolated a long time ago in 1832. Um, and then through the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were feeding experiments on animals suggesting that creatine was absorbed when consumed and that absorption exceeded excretion, like when they mm. would collect the feces and the urine. Um, so it was being used somehow. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the fate of the creatine was controversial. Okay. So some people thought that it was being absorbed and just kind of like used for God knows what, like who, who <laughs> know, who know, like it's being stored somewhere in the body as creatine, but we don't know where we yeah. don't really know what it's doing. Um, other people, like since it's a nitrogen rich compound, they thought that maybe it was being metabolized and broken down into just general amino acids mm -hmm. and kind of used like any other protein would be. Uh, but yeah, so late 18, early 1900s, there were these experiments showing that it was absorbed and that absorption exceeded excretion, but the, the fate of it wasn't uh, fully known until a series of experiments by Fallon and Dennis, or Fallon and Denis, in 1912 that that pretty conclusively established that creatine intake increased muscle creatine levels uh, in particular. Um, and, and I say pretty conclusively established because just the, the limitations of the experimental methods in 1912 were considerable. But yeah, that's they, kind of impressive that they figured it out then. Yeah, they, they established it about as well as you could establish something in 1912. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's when... That's when we kind of knew uh, with with a reasonably high degree of confidence that creatine intake increased body creatine levels and in particular muscle creatine levels. Mm -hmm. And then uh, phosphocreatine, which just to just to give like a very, very brief bit of background, 
uh, about how creatine works. I, I assume a lot of people listening to this know already, but I'm sure some do not. So essentially, creatine is a molecule that is able to bond with a free phosphate group, forms a compound called phosphocreatine, and the most kind of acute way that creatine works during exercise is that you have ATP, that's the energy currency of the cell, you use ATP to power muscle contraction and just all of the various things going on in the muscle during exercise, and you need to replenish that ATP. Like it donates a phosphate and then it becomes ADP, adenosine diphosphate. You need to hook another phosphate back onto it again to make it ATP, adenosine triphosphate again, so it can it can keep powering muscle contraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are various ways that you can recycle that ATP. The, the one with the greatest capacity is oxidative metabolism, just kind of aerobic metabolism, everything that goes on in the mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell, as we all know. Uh, but during high-intensity exercise, you need, you need faster ways to replenish it if you're going to maintain performance. Uh, and so you have anaerobic glycolysis, but mm-hmm. you also have the phosphocreatine system. Essentially, you have phosphocreatine in your muscles. It's creatine bound to these free phosphate groups. And when ATP is uh, is deplenished Mm -hmm. by muscle contraction, exercise, whatever, essentially the ADP that results from it can just hook up with the phosphocreatine and say, hey, give me that phosphate. Uh, And that's just a one-step chemical reaction. You get a transfer of the phosphate group from the phosphocreatine to the ADP, you get ATP out of it. Um, so like the phosphocreatine basically gives you a reserve of mm. phosphates that can be used to very, very rapidly replenish ATP during exercise uh, way, way faster than anaerobic glycolysis or oxidative metabolism. And it's still very, very finite. But essentially, if you didn't have any other metabolic way to replenish ATP, um, Let's say just the the levels of ATP in your muscle might be able to power like maximum contraction for, you know, six, seven, eight seconds, something like that. You add phosphocreatine into the mix and you can use the phosphates hooked on to those those creatine molecules to recycle some of that ATP. Now, instead of like eight to 10 seconds of maximal contraction, maybe you can push it to 10 to 12. So that's yeah, that's kind of what it does. That was the best explanation that I've read or seen or heard, I guess. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that actually makes sense to me now. Cool. Um, so yeah, like that's that's kind of how how creatine works, at least for its effects on exercise performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so phosphocreatine itself was discovered in 1926. That's like the actual kind of biologically active compound that you can use to recycle ATP. Mm-hmm. Um, it was discovered in 1926. The discovery was published in 1927. The researchers were Eggleton and Eggleton, I assume brothers, uh, but they actually didn't know what it was at first. So they were doing an experiment uh, in frogs, looking at like trying to quantify phosphate levels, like inorganic and organic phosphate levels in the in the gastroc of frogs um and they noticed that there was this organic compound with phosphate in it that seemed to be depleted uh, under conditions of fatigue mm-hmm. um basically you you would see decreases in this 
organic phosphate-containing compound and increases in free inorganic phosphate in the calves of these frogs uh, as they fatigued. But they didn't know that it was creatine phosphate. They just knew that it was some organic compound that, that had phosphate in it. Uh, and they called it phosphagen. So ha have you heard phosphagen at all? Like, is, is that a word that rings a bell? No, but I like that word. That's fun. It, it, is, a, it is a cool word. Um, it's a very intuitive word as well. It basically just means like this seems to be a source of a lot of the inorganic phosphates that we see in muscle tissue, like, mm -hmm. like the genesis of it. Mm. Um, and sometimes you'll still encounter this word. Uh, in part because the first kind of mass market creatine supplement was called phosphagen. Oh. Um, and in part because, like, since this was what creatine phosphate or phosphocreatine was first called in the scientific literature, mm -hmm. um, that just stuck with some people. Mm -hmm. And uh, that energy system that I described previously using the creatine phosphate to recycle ATP, you'll sometimes hear that referred to as the phosphagen system. So... If anyone listening to this has heard phosphagen and they're like, "What? Where, where did that come from?" <laughs> if any of you old heads are still using words from the twenties, or I, or just people, if if you did an undergrad in exercise physiology, like you've you've heard phosphagen, like okay. that's interesting. It, it's a common term, uh, but yeah, I I didn't know where it came from, but yeah, it came from just these two chemists that were doing experiments on frogs in 1926, uh, who discovered phosphocreatine and did not know what it was. Uh, but then later in 1927, another pair of researchers named Fisk and Sabero, uh, like, kind of discovered the same compound again. Yeah. And, and they were able to determine that it was creatine phosphate. Mm -hmm. Like, essentially, when the phosphate group and the creatine dissociated in solution, they isolated, like, the compound that, that the phosphates had come from. Uh, distilled it down and realized like, oh, this is creatine. Like this has been discovered before. We know what it is. So yeah, the phosphagen that Eggleton and Eggleton talked about, it's creatine phosphate. So uh, yeah, 1927 is when it was discovered. Nice. But at the time, no one knew the import of that. Uh, so phosphocreatine was actually discovered before ATP was. Uh, ATP wasn't discovered until 1929. That's wild. Yeah. Um, and also, the purpose of ATP wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't like fully established until later, but it wasn't even hypothesized until 1941. Uh, <laughs> so these initial discoveries were just by chemists who were trying to figure out ways to isolate and quantify the phosphate or the phosphorus content of tissues. And they just kept running into these pesky organic compounds that contained phosphorus that were where it was difficult to like isolate the phosphorus or the phosphate from the organic compounds. Yeah. And so they're like, yeah, there's this shit called phosphocreatine. There's this, there's this shit called ATP. Like we don't know what any of it does, but like, we're, we're just trying to measure the phosphorus here. Um, so yeah, in, in 1941, the actual purpose of ATP was first hypothesized. It donates its phosphate group. That's an exothermic reaction. The combination of, of the phosphate group kind of changing the conformation of proteins and also the energy released being able to catalyze reactions. Uh, like, like ATP serving as kind of the, the stock energy currency of, of a cell. Mm -hmm. uh, that was first hypothesized in the 40s. Um, so then from 41, when the purpose of, of ATP was first hypothesized until the 60s, 
the purpose of phosphocreatine still wasn't known. Um, people were starting to get inklings based on the fact that it seemed to be kind of similar to ATP. Mm-hmm. Uh, during fatiguing exercise, you would see phosphates being dissociated from ATP. You would see them being dissociated from phosphocreatine. So it's like, okay, we, we think that this probably has something to do with energy metabolism. Um, but a lot of people actually thought that phosphocreatine was basically like a different form of ATP. Yeah. Where... That, it, it makes sense as something to think. Yeah, like it, it makes intuitive sense yeah. too. Because you do have like particularly high levels of phosphocreatine in your muscles, mm-hmm. which do experience really, really high energy demands during exercise. And you also have like special versions of other molecules at at relatively high levels in muscle tissue that were being discovered around this time as well. So mm-hmm. like hemoglobin, that's what carries oxygen in your blood. Uh, you also have a very similar compound in a lot of tissues, but in particularly high levels in muscle called myoglobin. Uh, the, the myo root means muscle. Um, and it, it basically serves the same purpose, but like since... Uh, energy needs and therefore oxygen needs are can be so high in muscle. You kind of have this other hemoglobin-like compound that is in relatively high levels in muscle to kind of like grab that oxygen, transport it where it needs to go, store a little bit of it for the muscle. So a lot of people thought phosphocreatine worked similarly. Like, hey, use ATP for, for energy to power muscle contraction, whatever. Uh, the energy d- demands in skeletal muscle are are very spiky, like they're often very low, but then they're extremely high during exercise. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it would kind of make sense to have a a sort of backup ATP. Yeah. Um, but then in the '60s, what phosphocreatine actually does was established. Like, it's not directly donating its phosphate to say like the myosin head to power muscle contraction. It's donating it to the ATP or or the ADP to make more yeah. ATP. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like the sixties were when the basic biochemistry of phosphocreatine was, was fully worked out or, or worked out close enough to fully worked out. Um, but then there was about a 30 year lag before people started trying to use it for ergogenic purposes. Yeah. And in the era that kind of makes sense because... Uh, there wasn't, there wasn't really drug testing in that era. <laughs> and yeah. so the, the, the biochemistry was in place for people to maybe hypothesize that, Hey, if I took creatine, maybe that's going to increase muscle creatine stores. Uh, that's going to give me a way to rephosphorylate ATP a little bit better. Like, like the, the pieces were there, but drug testing wasn't really a thing. So it's like, why, why would I fuck around with that when I can just blast gear, you know? Um, <laughs> we know that works. Yeah. So uh, around the late 80s was when drug testing, especially like in the Olympics, but in other sports as well, started getting a lot more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also seems to be around the time people started experimenting with creatine as a supplement to improve performance. Um and creatine first entered the mainstream in 1992. So, oh, wow. yeah, well, yeah, not so, a super long time ago. Yeah, it, it's surprisingly recent. Um, I, I just say that because that's around the time I was born. I was like, wow, that was just yesterday. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very recent. 
yeah, like, what was that? Maybe like 20 years ago, give <laughs> yeah. or take? 20, 25? Who knows? Um, but yeah, so there was a British sprinter named Linford Christie who won the 100-meter uh, sprint at the Barcelona Olympics in 92. And uh, so Christie himself already had a history of being a drug cheat. So he had been found to be taking a banned stimulant in the 1988 Seoul Olympics. Okay. Um, and this was also an era when people were pretty sensitive to doping in sports, especially in sprinting. Because also in those same 1988 Olympics, that was when uh, Ben Johnson, Canadian sprinter, mm -hmm. beat Carl Lewis, uh, American sprinter, and long jumper, and just all around like monster track and field athlete. Nice. Uh, but yeah, Ben Johnson beat Carl Lewis in the 100 meter finals in, in those Olympics. And then Ben Johnson tested positive for steroids, uh, speci specifically stenozolol. Uh, which I think is is Winstrol. Like I oh, think that's what okay. most people call it. Yeah. Um, I'm not totally sure about that. I'm yeah, but I I, I think I think that's what it is. Whatever, it doesn't it's matter. It's a steroid. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Ben Johnson got popped for gear. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so yeah, there 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 were already like suspicions and and kind of bad vibes around Linford Christie for yeah. his for his getting caught taking banned stimulants. Uh lot of kind of concern around drug use in the 100 meters in particular due to the the prior Olympics. And then after Linford Christie won the 100 meter finals, it came out that he was taking creatine. Oh, um, no. And I think, I think this is where the, the common, uh, just completely wrong yeah. misconception that creatine is a steroid comes from. That makes sense. They're like... This is a this is a guy who does steroids, and here he is doing this new thing that we haven't heard about yet that any that no one else is doing. So well, at, at the time, at the time, Linford Christie hadn't been caught using steroids. It was the previous hundred meter champion oh, okay. Ben Johnson, but uh -huh. like there was the association between steroids and the hundred meters. I see. And Linford Christie was also busted using steroids later in his career. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like so, it, it was kind of the perfect storm yeah. for. This guy wins the 100 meters in a relatively dirty sport yeah. in, in the Olympics. Uh, people find out he's taking this thing called creatine, which most people hadn't heard of. Like, it wasn't a common supplement. And so then I, I think that is kind of the cultural soup from which the idea that creatine is a steroid emerged. But it's also the set of conditions that made it a popular consumer supplement. Yeah. Uh, so after the news broke that Linford Christie had been taking creatine, uh, a, a company called EAS dropped the first consumer creatine product on the market nice. the very next year in 1993, nice. called which they called Phosphagen. And uh, yeah, the, the creatine market just kind of exploded yeah. after that. Were um, other supplements popular at this time? Do you know that off the top of your head? Oh, man. There were... I think by the early 90s, there were already some like really disgusting protein supplements on the market. Okay. Like like th this was yeah. this was before uh, like the reverse osmosis process <laughs> for like creatine isolate had uh -huh. gotten good. So I think I think the prior process for making like whey protein supplements was essentially you get a vat of whey, like j just the byproduct from the cheese making process yeah. and kind of cook it down. Um, Ew. which, 
will give you a powder, but also <laughs> kind of produces some all flavors as yeah. well. Like it, I, I I haven't taken any of like the very OG protein supplements, but everyone I've talked to that that has, uh, basically says like, you kids these days, you don't know how good you had it. Like mm-hmm. back in my day, the the protein we took was dog shit. Um, I believe it. Going back even further, people used to take liver tabs, which was basically just like dried desiccated liver uh, that was either pressed into tablets or um like powdered and put into capsules. Okay. Um, which was also a good source of protein yeah. and also potentially a dangerously high source of vitamin A. Oh, perfect. Uh, but also like iron and a bunch of other yeah. micronutrients as I well. I know like eating liver is good for you every once in a while. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, so that was another like very, very early supplement that people used to take. I don't really know what else was on the market. Like I'm, I'm sure people were already using caffeine for ergogenic purposes, yeah. but like, Really, the the consumer supplement market, like f- like sports supplements, uh, really came into its own around the same time drug testing did. Mm. Because because again, yeah, like, why are you gonna fuck around with like citrulline or beta alanine yeah. or creatine when you can just blast gear? You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, like I I I don't know like. I don't have a full accounting of yeah. like the history of this of the sports supplement market, but my understanding is that it roughly coincided with when drug testing became a lot more common. Yeah, yeah, um, that was kind of what I was assuming. So I just kind of wanted to check that assumption, and it also makes sense why that like creatine is a steroid thing kind of started circulating is because there just weren't other supplements. Yeah, around at the time, so it's like well, we know that athletes use one thing steroids so this is likely something that has an effect similar to that yeah yeah for sure uh but yeah so that's that's kind of the history of creatine up to the present day ish i don't yeah. think i don't think there have been any like major developments from there yeah the biochemistry was known people started doing more research on it for kind of ergogenic purposes mm-hmm. um it became like a pretty big consumer product right from the jump and yeah, that that gets us to the present day. Um, so yeah, let's let's get into some of the myths and misconceptions floating around about creatine. Uh, one of the common ones is that creatine causes hair loss. Yeah, uh, I, I know you've heard about that because you you read the comments <laughs> on our Instagram posts. Um, have you heard or read anything about the the genesis of that idea, like where where it comes from? I know that, or, or my understanding is that it's from a singular study in mm-hmm. 2009. Yeah, that is that is 100% correct. Uh, and, and did you come across anything or anyone discussing what it was about that paper that made people think that creatine might cause hair loss? Yes, let me see if I can... If I can s- remember it exactly i mean it was something like the dht levels that creatine um, was associated with increased dht levels and dht levels are associated with hair loss um specifically in men yeah yeah so that that is that is the common accounting of it okay uh the first part is correct or at least is kind of a correct read of that study the second part may not be entirely correct and that's about the DHT causing the, the increased DHT causing hair loss. DHT levels causing hair loss. Okay, okay. So that that's a 
that's an important bit of nuance yeah that that gets completely stripped <laughs> yes that, that even the people i've seen pushing back against or like trying to debunk this claim haven't really touched on yeah um so yeah if if you're listening to this and you've heard people uh previously dunk on the claim that creatine causes hair loss uh keep listening like i i think that even most of the folks that try to debunk this claim do miss something that's very big and also very critical about this topic mm, uh that i'm going to discuss um so yeah but yeah what what you what you talked about is is essentially correct like where this idea comes from yeah um and so just as a little bit of background information on DHT and this topic in general, DHT stands for dihydrotestosterone. It is a metabolite of testosterone proper. And uh, there's this enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, which is what converts testosterone to DHT, uh, primarily in men. It does also cause that, diver- that conversion in women, but a lot of the DHT in women is converted from another hormone called androstenedione, but that's another topic. Um, but yeah, and DHT works basically the same way testosterone does, and uh, basically the same way that steroid hormones in general do. So it's since it's a steroid hormone, it's built on a cholesterol backbone. That means it's lipid-soluble, so it can diffuse straight into a cell, and from there it binds to an androgen receptor, and that ligand receptor complex, which is what you would call it, uh, translocates to the nucleus where it affects gene transcription, gene expression. Mm-hmm. So like that, that's how steroid hormones work. Um, they bind to a receptor. The ligand receptor complex goes to the nucleus. It affects gene transcription. And since uh, DHT binds to the same androgen receptor testosterone does, it has basically the same effects that testosterone would. Um, like it's going to influence expression of the same genes, cause creation of the same proteins, cause kind of the same changes in cellular biochemistry. Mm-hmm. But uh, DHT has about five times greater receptor affinity for the androgen receptor than testosterone does. So it basically has the same effects, but more pronounced kind of per per unit of DHT. Mm-hmm. Like Like one... Like one gram of DHT would cause similar effects as one gram of testosterone, but like five times as much of them. Oh, wow. Okay. More, more or less. Like, okay. Like not exactly because then you have to talk about like receptor density and like a bunch of other shit. But like it's essentially <laughs> like super testosterone. Like that's that's a reasonable way Ooh, to think about yeah. it. Um, and like you mentioned, DHT is implicated in hair loss. In particular, the most common type of hair loss, which is called androgenic alopecia, used to be called male pattern baldness. Um, And then people discovered that kind of similar mechanisms worked in women as well, although it's a less common thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they used to call it male pattern baldness and also female pattern baldness. And now it's just kind of all lumped together as androgenic alopecia. Because alopecia, hair loss, androgenic, caused by androgens. Yeah. Uh, DHT being an androgen. So that's that's where that name comes from. And uh, the most popular anti-hair loss drugs uh, function by being 5-alpha reductase inhibitors or 5-alpha reductase uh, antagonists. So 
essentially what they do is is they kind of like clog up this receptor mm-hmm. so that testosterone is still floating around or, or not this receptor but th- this enzyme so that testosterone is floating around but the enzyme that would convert it to DHT can't convert it to DHT uh, and that does seem to be very effective at reducing hair loss if you have hair loss because of androgenic alopecia um, so that that kind of creates the idea that DHT levels are associated with, or like if DHT levels get too high, that's going to cause hair loss. So that's kind of the necessary background information for the 2009 study, which will be linked in the show notes, but the title is Three Weeks of Creatine Monohydrate Supplementation Affects Dihydrotestosterone to Testosterone Ratio in College-Aged Rugby Players. don't know how to pronounce the the lead author's name, but it it would be phonetically pronounced Vander Merway, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, that'll that'll be linked in the show notes if anyone wants to read it. Uh, and so this was a, a pretty straightforward crossover study. There were twenty male rugby players initially recruited. They were randomized into two groups. There were four total dropouts. So you wind up with eight subjects per group. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of, it was a crossover study. So there were two, there were two parts of the study essentially. And during each part of the study, there was a creatine group and a placebo group um, where essentially like to start with one group took creatine, the other took a placebo. Yeah. You, you have that phase, then you have a washout period And then the people who initially took creatine now take the placebo. The people who previously took the placebo now take the creatine. Mm -hmm. And you just do the same thing again. Yeah. Um, So yeah, the, the, like each, each kind of leg of the study had a seven day loading period where the people taking creatine took 25 grams of creatine, which is a lot. Per day? uh, Per day. Yeah. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, that, uh, like 20, 25 grams is like a typical loading phase. Okay. Um, so when when I use creatine, mm-hmm. g- I generally just forego the loading phase. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about this later. Yeah. But I've can, heard about that, though, like that yeah. you, ta- you have the loading phase and then you kind of even out after that. Yeah. So you, you can either take a really high dose for like a week yeah. and then a lower dose to kind of maintain it. Or you can just start with the lower dose and instead of fully saturating your muscle creatine levels in uh usually a loading phase lasts a week but generally you're fully saturated after like three or four days Mm -hmm. but instead of taking three or four days to saturate it takes like three or four weeks to saturate Mm -hmm. uh but i just don't want to deal with the loading phase so i i don't do it yeah most Um, of the stuff that i've seen about like gastrointestinal issues is like when people are in that loading phase yes yes absolutely so maybe take three weeks if you don't want to shit your pants yes uh, but yeah, so since each kind of segment of this study was was just three weeks long, they would do a one-week loading phase followed by 14 days with a maintenance dose of five grams of creatine. Okay. Uh, and then there was a six-week washout between phases, which would be plenty nice. of time to get creatine levels back to baseline. Yeah. Like it, it takes about a month after you stop supplementing for creatine levels to get back to baseline. Uh-huh. So you just tack two extra weeks on, like six weeks, kind of a better safe than sorry mm-hmm. uh, uh, type of amount of time. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of what happened in the study. And then in terms of results, um, people, people reporting that the study found that creatine uh, supplementation increased DHT do seem to be mostly correct. 
So mm-hmm. during the placebo uh, arm of the study, um, you saw like non-significant decreases in DHT levels during the three weeks. Uh, so it was starting at 1.26 nanomoles per liter and ended at 1.06 nanomoles per liter. Um, but given the kind of typical amount of variability, that wasn't a statistically significant change. Mm-hmm. In the creatine condition, they were starting at 0.98 nanomoles per liter, uh, got up to 1.53 after the loading phase and ended at 1.38 nanomoles per liter. So there there was kind of a, a general trend towards increasing yeah. and the, the magnitude of the increase was statistically significant and the different effects between arms were, were statistically significant as well. Um, so yeah, uh, that's broadly what the study found. Like it, it did suggest that creatine supplementation might increase blood DHT levels. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are a couple things to note about that. The first is that at all time points, DHT levels were comfortably within the normal range. So the, the lowest measurement at any point in time was kind of the creatine arm pre-study, which was at 0.98 nanomoles per liter. The highest observed at any point was after the loading phase in the creatine condition. It was 1.53 nanomoles per liter. Mm -hmm. And the reference range for DHT levels, like you you can find different ranges from different sources, Mm -hmm. but for men, uh, what what you tend to see is somewhere around 0.5 0.5 to 2.5 nanomoles per liter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll, we'll link a source in the show notes um, that uh, specifically like gives a reference range of 0.47 to 2.65 nanomoles per liter. But you, you can you can see like slightly different reference ranges from different sources. Yeah. But I haven't seen one where the bottom end of the reference range was above 0.98 or the top end of the reference range was below mm-hmm. 1.53. Like like the values observed we're not seeing like huge noteworthy changes in DHT levels like it's it's all just fluctuations within the normal range you would expect yeah. to see what exactly does reference range mean um so when when you go to the doctor mm-hmm. and you get blood work done uh and say you look at your i don't know like blood urea nitrogen levels like BUN yeah. if you see that on on your blood test uh, there will be a number next to your test result, and then there will be a range on mm-hmm. the right side yeah. of the sheet that shows the reference range for it, which is just kind of like what you normally observe in healthy people. Okay. Okay. Where if your levels of whatever are below that reference range, that suggests that like, hey, we, we know that most people like this particular metabolite or biomarker is within this range. So if you're like comfortably below the bottom of that range, Maybe there's something going on causing this biomarker to be below the range, or if it's way above the range, maybe there's something nefarious going on to make it be above the range. But yeah, the, the reference range is just kind of like, what are the values we typically see in healthy people? Okay. Um, but yeah, so so DHT levels were within the reference range in both conditions at all time points. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one, even if we did confidently say that creatine increased DHT levels, um, you wouldn't expect it to do anything particularly interesting unless it was increasing DHT levels above the top end of that reference range, mm-hmm. typically. Um, second is that 
these results could just be the result of kind of statistical noise and normal variation. Yeah. So DHT concentrations in serum within a single individual can vary within about a twofold range. Um, so, you know, someone who goes in and gets their DHT levels checked and it's one nanomole per liter today, maybe they go back in three days and it's two nanomoles per liter. And their kind of typical level, if you measured them every day for a month, would yeah. average out at one and a half. Mm-hmm. Like that that's kind of the the range you tend to see. Interesting. Um and so like if this was a study with like a hundred subjects, mm-hmm. those sorts of things, like like typical just day-to-day variation, that we could be quite confident that it would all just come out in the wash. Yeah. And so group level changes we see over time are probably indicative of actual group level changes. In a study with just 16 subjects that completed it, that might be a small enough subject number uh, and the variation in DHT levels within individuals might be large enough that we would see these results just purely by chance. Yeah. Um, Like that's not outside the the realm of possibility. And then also the finding that, um, that creatine increased DHT levels, like it could also just be kind of chance variation just from like a a weirdly low low baseline number Mm -hmm. so um like day zero for both arms like the the pre-supplementation measurements in theory should have been the same between the creatine condition and the placebo condition um but it wasn't it was like 1.26 with placebo and 0.98 with creatine um and where creatine wound up 1.38, that's not too different from baseline in placebo, which was yeah. 1.26. Um, so yeah, like the the finding of the changes over time in the creatine group might just kind of be an artifact of them starting with exceptionally low DHT levels compared to a lot of the other measurements for reasons that no one knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it might also be like a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, those are the typical criticisms you'll hear people throw out when discussing this study, uh, when when trying to throw water on the idea that creatine causes hair loss. Like, yeah. the changes in DHT we're seeing here aren't scary. Like, it's staying within the reference ranges, relatively small sample size, lower baseline measures in the creatine condition. Like, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, like, just don't worry about it. Like, that, that is kind of where the right. research criticism yeah. here ends. Um, but we can go multiple steps deeper, <laughs> which is that this finding is almost entirely or maybe completely entirely irrelevant to hair loss. So uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, so the the study in rugby players at everyone's sites saying, ah, creatine increases DHT levels, DHT causes hair loss, creatine's going to cause hair loss, very scary. It was measuring serum DHT levels, so DHT levels in the blood. And blood levels of DHT mean not a goddamn thing when it comes to hair loss. Okay, so, that was something I was going to ask, yeah. Yes, so... um. I there, there's going to be a lot of research linked here uh, in the show notes for people who really want to get into this. But 
I just I just pulled out a quote from a 2018 review titled uh, Androgens and Androgen Receptor Action in Skin and Hair Follicles that, that kind of sets the stage for this segment. Uh, that quote is, As no correlation between pattern of baldness and serum androgen has been found, the pathogenic action of androgens is likely to be mediated through the intracellular signaling of hair follicle target cells. So... Did that make sense to you? No. Okay. So it will in a little bit. Okay, great. The The basic takeaway is that circulating blood levels of DHT aren't what cause baldness. Okay. So there have been studies that have looked at uh, like people with androgenic alopecia, people without it, looking at correlations between testosterone levels and DHT levels and likelihood of baldness or rate of progression of androgenic alopecia or all of these things or just group comparisons like you take some people who are bald some people who aren't bald yeah and just look like do these people have different blood levels of these androgens yeah they don't uh so the reference range like in terms of what that means for baldness like doesn't actually mean anything right so the the so it doesn't matter that it was not that it was within the reference range like that's a a tidy thing for people trying to explain this with the with the assumption that DHT might cause hair loss. But like even if they found levels above that reference range, like that wouldn't actually indicate anything. Um probably. Okay. Like so most of the DHT in your blood is DHT that was generated in peripheral tissues that that then didn't end up getting metabolized in those tissues so it does get into the blood so like um if if you did see like a five-fold increase in dht levels when people took creatine Mm -hmm. that might suggest that you're seeing like pretty big differences or pretty big changes in peripheral dht metabolism yeah um so the, the fact that it was still within the reference range, I think, is still, like, noteworthy and okay. somewhat important. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it, it, it also, like, the serum levels just don't seem to be particularly relevant. Okay. Um, so, yeah, circulating DHT isn't what causes baldness. It seems to primarily be a matter of DHT conversion in the hair follicles themselves. So you have systemic hormones and you also have autocrine and paracrine hormones and systemic hormones are essentially i mean and some hormones are like systemic but then they also have like autocrine and paracrine functions and i i see your look of confusion i'm about to explain (laughs) what i'm talking about but systemic hormones are hormones that are generally produced entirely or almost entirely in a single organ Mm -hmm. and that organ releases them into the bloodstream and then the hormone goes to wherever it needs to go and has whatever effect it needs to have. Okay. So like uh, insulin is a great yeah. example. Yeah. Uh, you produce it in your pancreas. The pancreas releases it into the bloodstream and it travels from the pancreas to other tissues and mm-hmm. has effects in other tissues. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, so like creati- or, uh, insulin has effects in muscle, but like muscle isn't producing its own insulin. Like it, so right. it's, it's coming. It's from a the systemic pancreas. hormone. Yeah. Um, testosterone is also primarily a systemic hormone. So you do have actually like kind of a lot of tissues that can produce a little testosterone, but most of the testosterone you, you have, uh, in males is produced in the testes Mm -hmm. in women produced in the ovaries, Mm -hmm. a little bit in the adrenal glands as well. 
and it's primarily produced in those tissues, and it goes systemically and does whatever it needs to do. DHT is primarily an autocrine and paracrine hormone, which means that most of the DHT that a particular tissue uses to do stuff is made in that tissue itself. So okay. your, your body makes testosterone, or in the case of women, androstenedione, that goes to the skin. And then the skin kind of absorbs that testosterone or androstenedione and says, hey, we, we need some androgenic action. So we are going to convert this testosterone to DHT here in the skin, and then it's going to do what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and that's what autocrine and paracrine means. Like autocrine means a cell making a hormone for its own purpose. Mm-hmm. Paracrine means basically local action, like, you know, uh, uh, skin cell that's like four skin cells away from some other skin cell might make some DHT and it just kind of diffuses through the local cells yeah. and has kind of a localized effect. Okay. And so, yeah, DHT is primarily an autocrine and paracrine hormone. Mm-hmm. It is not primarily a systemic hormone. And so systemic levels of DHT are typically not particularly informative of anything. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about effects on baldness, we are interested about kind of DHT action and metabolism in the scalp itself. Yeah. So as kind of like supporting evidence for that, Scalp areas that are more likely to become bald have higher levels of the 5-alpha reductase enzyme mm-hmm. than scalp areas that are less likely to become bald. Like if uh, if someone took a little biopsy of the scalp on the top of your head, yeah. which is where you're most likely to go bald, and took a biopsy of your scalp near the back of your head where very, very few people go bald, yeah. and just looked at 5-alpha reductase levels in those two biopsies, they'd see that you have way, way higher levels of the enzyme that converts testosterone to DHT on the top of your head than on the back of your head. Mm. Um, And people with androgenic alopecia just have higher scalp levels of DHT than people who don't, even though they have very similar systemic levels of DHT. Okay. So you measure it in the blood. People with and without baldness look like they have very similar DHT levels. You look at DHT in the scalp itself way higher in people with androgenic yeah, alopecia. Yeah. Um, Are people testing that themselves? No, 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 no. <laughs> like that's, uh, and typically like, I don't think a doctor would usually no. even test for it. They just look at the pattern of the baldness and be like, you have androgenic alopecia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just going to put you on the drugs. They're not going to give a skin biopsy right. from your head. That's good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but like when they study this in a lab, yes. like that's, that's what they see. Um, And there's also some research suggesting that there might just be higher androgen receptor density in people who are prone to baldness Mm -hmm. and in the areas of the scalp that are likely to go bald. Um, Although that's controversial. The the bit about the areas of the scalp likely to go bald having higher androgen receptor density, like that's, that's known. Okay. Whether or not it's a difference in density of androgen receptors or just sensitivity of androgen Mm. receptors and people predisposed versus not predisposed to baldness like that's that's still kind of an open question uh but yeah like so it's it's all about local stuff um and so like dht is definitely important for hair loss uh taking drugs that stop the conversion of testosterone to dht uh is sufficient to stop the progression of hair loss but again, it's it's about the local action, not 
yeah. systemic blood right. levels of DHT. Uh, so then the next logical question is, well, what, what underlying sets of conditions cause scalp DHT levels to increase, to cause hair loss? And there is surprisingly, like, with, with uh, becoming bald being such a common fear yeah. that people have, especially men, and with kind of the hair loss drug industry being so big, mm -hmm. you would think that there would be like a full accounting of the, the pathogenesis of uh, androgenic alopecia, but there's not. Like there, there are still a lot of unresolved questions in this area. Um, but one possibility, one, one thing that's like relatively commonly accepted is that kind of hypoxia or blood flow seems to be pretty important. So scalp blood flow is really, really high. Um, it's about 10 times greater than skin blood flow to other regions. Wow. Which, if you've ever got a head wound, you know that. Like, have, have you ever gotten a head wound? <laughs> no. Uh, I have. Those motherfuckers don't stop bleeding. Oh, like it, yeah. They bleed so much because the scalp has such high levels of, of blood flow mm -hmm. to it. Um, and men with androgenic alopecia have rates of scalp blood flow that are way lower than men without androgenic alopecia. Like 60% like lower. Yeah. Um, and so like one possibility is that uh, essentially like something happens to decrease scalp blood flow. DHT generally promotes angiogenesis, like the growth of new blood vessels. So maybe something is causing a decrease in scalp blood flow. Mm -hmm. Your your skin cells in your scalp say, hey, we're just going to start creating more DHT because we're trying to promote vascularization. Uh, but then that has the side effect of causing hair loss. Okay. Um, but there are other like potential accountings for this. So the this next idea I'm going to throw out I think is is wrong, but it's yeah. interesting. So the first one you said that seems very plausible, but that is is that still just kind of a theory? Um, so like a, a lot of people think that blood flow is is important. Yes. Whether the DHT increase is like directly mechanistically caused by the decrease in blood flow, or whether they have a common cause, like there's um that that's where there's a lot more discussion. Okay. Um, but yeah, so there's uh. There's this, I believe, Turkish guy, um, Dr. Ustuner, I think, um, who is of the uh, is of the opinion that it's all about gravity, uh, which okay, <laughs> which is a, a very fun Tell idea. Tell me more. Um, so, yeah, so the, this review paper will be will be linked in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, so he proposes that what actually causes hair loss is a feedback loop caused by gravity and the thinning of the subcutaneous fat layer on the top of the head. Um, mm. So essentially, like one one thing that's noteworthy about male pattern baldness, androgen and alopecia, is that it really is just like the top of the head that goes bald. Yes. Like the sides of the head, back of the head, mostly keeps the hair. Yes. Um, and so... He and when you think about how gravity would act, it's pulling straight <laughs> down, and so that that is technically creating and it's acting on all tissues. So it is mm -hmm. technically pulling the skin on the top of your head down into your scalp, whereas the skin on the side of your head 
it's maybe like creating a shearing force yeah. against your scalp, but it's not like directly pushing it into your scalp. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and so <laughs> I mean, kind of. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so he he thinks your explanation makes sense. The theory is interesting. Oh man, this this is a really fun paper. Like there's <laughs> there's fun little drawings of like of heads of of, of heads and how gravity would act <laughs> on like different regions of the head. And he's like, yeah, we we see that like right where you would get that cutoff of gravity pushing stuff down onto the top of the head versus not like that's that's what circumscribes the area that goes I bald. Mean, yeah. Like, which okay, I I, th I think that it's a matter of mistaken correlation, but I, I see where he's coming from. Yeah. Um. So yeah, he is, he essentially proposes that. Okay. So another little bit of background information. Okay. There's there's this thing when you read research in this area that people will refer to as the DHT paradox. Mm. The DHT paradox is that. Some hair on your body doesn't seem to be particularly sensitive to DHT at all. Right. So like your eyebrows or your eyelashes mm -hmm. or hair on the sides and back of your head doesn't really seem to be influenced by DHT levels. Other hair does. So for men, like facial hair, mm -hmm. the hair follicles that create facial hair are very sensitive to DHT. If you never produce DHT, like if, if you were castrated, for instance, mm -hmm. you don't grow a beard and mustache. Yeah. Um, also, like body hair, armpit hair, pubic hair, those hair follicles are sensitive to DHT as well. Mm -hmm. And the hair on the top of your head, also sensitive to DHT. Okay. And in most parts of your body where you have hair that's sensitive to DHT, it's net anabolic. Like, it causes hair to grow where it didn't previously, right. like in the case of facial hair. Yeah. I mean, like, you have the follicles, but, like, they're producing, like, little baby white yes. hairs. yeah. So, like, big, big, thick facial hair <laughs> hairs. Um, or, like, body hair, pubic hair, whatever. Uh -huh. Like, it, it's pro-anabolic. It makes, like, it activates these follicles and makes them grow bigger, thicker hair mm -hmm. than, than they did previously. Nice. Whereas on the top of the head, it seems to be net catabolic. Yeah. Like the the way the way that uh um like the bald the baldness actually progresses with androgenic alopecia is through a process of hair minimization, I think. I think that's what they call it. Like just um, thinning? Well, basically, like, the hair follicle itself gets smaller and smaller and smaller over time. Yeah. The hairs themselves get... Finer. Finer and finer and finer over time. And eventually, the hair follicle just gets so small that... No hair. Hair, hairs can't poke out of it anymore. Um, so, yeah. Interesting. And so, it, it causes most androgen-sensitive hair follicles to get bigger. Like, it's net yeah. anabolic. Whereas top of the head, it causes those androgen-sensitive follicles to get smaller. It's net catabolic. Yeah. And you're not, like, losing your beard when you get old. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You'll, you'll often see this referred to as the androgen paradox or the DHT paradox. And, and this guy is proposing that it's not a paradox at all. Okay. In fact... DHT is still pro-anabolic for the androgen-sensitive follicles on the top of the head, mm -hmm. like it is for facial hair and body hair. But the problem is, as the subcutaneous uh, layer of fat gets thinner, there's essentially more pressure between the follicle itself and, like, your skull. Mm -hmm. and, and the fat is getting thinner because of gravity, right? The, the fat, well... 
gravity, age, what like in a, this theory and, is well, he saying and, and the DHT itself. Okay, okay. Um but yeah, so as the subcutaneous fat layer gets thinner, there's less kind of soft tissue for the hair follicle to grow down into. Okay. So DHT production increases to promote follicle growth. So they can kind of like ha- have a, have a bit more biochemical push behind them to mm-hmm. grow down far enough yeah. so that they can grow full hairs. But uh, DHT and, and androgens in general tend to promote thinning of subcutaneous fat layers. Mm-hmm. So it's like basically the DHT is trying to call like like trying to fix the problem by helping these hair follicles grow down and get large enough. But it's also exacerbating the problem by thinning that subcutaneous fat layer even more, which then makes the deleterious effects of gravity, putting pressure <laughs> on the follicles like like okay. magnified and it's basically a positive feedback loop. Okay. Um anyway, I I think that's completely wrong. <laughs> um but it it is it Props is Props to him though for for his theory. Yeah, it's it's, it's a creative. fun idea. Yeah. It's a fun idea. Um the, the biggest issue with it is that like the DHT paradox isn't like really that much of a paradox anymore. Like oh. it it used to be, but um now we have at least like a slightly better, though still not full kind of mechanistic metabolic accounting of why DHT is net anabolic in some follicles and net catabolic in others. Um, So this comes from in vitro studies primarily, where they'll take like follicle cells from like the top of the head versus the back of the head um, and just culture them in a Petri dish Mm -hmm. and then expose them to DHT and see, hey, what happens? Do you get bigger? Do you get smaller? What what hormones do you release in response to this DHT? And what they find is that for follicles from the top of the head, when you expose them to DHT in a in a petri dish, um, they tend to get smaller, and uh, you get suppressed growth of co-cultured uh, keratinocytes, which are like the the cells that actually make the hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and for like beard hairs that are cultured and then exposed to to DHT, you do see enhanced growth and also enhanced growth of co-cultured uh, keratinocytes. It's like it is actually having like net different effects. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be largely as a result of like the secondary hormones that are released in response to DHT. So in um like in in the beard hairs for instance you get an increase in IGF1 levels which is kind of a net anabolic hormone does does a lot of growth related stuff yeah whereas for follicle cells taken from the top of the head you see an increase in something called transforming growth factor 1 beta which seems to be what's kind of telling the keratinocytes like ah hey don't grow quite as much mm-hmm. um so yeah essentially you just get like different secondary hormones being released in response to DHT. So yeah, his whole idea is based upon the idea that like DHT does still promote follicle growth at the top of the head, uh, but it doesn't. But I do think that, um, I do think that like we shouldn't fully throw the the baby out with the bathwater. Like, it is, it is possible that the thinning of the subcutaneous fat layer is mm-hmm. still relevant. Yeah. One of the reasons I say that is that, like, 
you do see a thinning of subcutaneous fat with age. Mm -hmm. And you also see an increase in balding with age. Mm-hmm. And you also see a decrease in androgen levels and like DHT conversion with age. Yeah. So it could just be that like, you know, maybe the DHT levels in part cause hair loss by contributing to thinning of the subcutaneous fat layer. But like a lot of the other parts of his theory don't seem to be particularly well supported. Uh, there was a similar hypothesis as well that is is also similarly interesting that I think is a little bit more convincing. Um so it is from, uh, it was published in, in the journal Medical Hypotheses in 2018 from a guy named Robert S. English Jr. And um, his idea is basically that like what's actually causing this, like what's, what's putting you down the road towards baldness is scalp tension. Uh, essentially proposing that chronic scalp tension is causing an inflammatory response mm-hmm. and that stimulates uh, increased DHT production, like increased levels of the 5-alpha reductase enzyme to cause increased DHT production. Um, so like you, you often see increases in androgen levels in response to like inflammation or cell damage um, in part because they help like tamp down on the inflammatory response getting excessive. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, androgens tend to have like weak to moderate immunosuppressant uh, effects, which is one reason why like men tend to get sick a little bit more frequently than women do. Um, And they also generally promote anabolism or anabolism. So like if a cell has been damaged, you kind of need something saying like, hey, let's increase protein synthesis to like repair this damage, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, create, like build new proteins to replace the ones that have been damaged. So like you often see increases in androgen levels as part of the response to inflammation. So he he's proposing that chronic scalp tension increases in inflammation. That is what causes the DHT production. And then the DHT promotes thickening of the dermal sheath, uh, perifollicular fibrosis, um, and calcification of the blood vessels of the scalp, leading to the decreases in blood flow. And uh, those, in addition to kind of like the direct actions of of DHT Mm -hmm. on the follicles themselves, like that's what ultimately results in in hair loss. And there's a bit of, uh, of incidental support for this, which is that, and and I didn't know this before digging into this body of research. Did you know Botox is being studied as a treatment for hair loss? No, that's cool though. It is, and it actually seems to work pretty well. Huh. Um, like it, it seems to, like other hair loss drugs, uh, reduce the progression of, of androgenic alopecia-related hair thinning. But there's also some research suggesting that it might, like allow for some hair regrowth. Wow. Um, and uh, the the mechanistic accounting of it isn't fully known. It, it Basically, it was discovered by accident where people were just using Botox in, injections for the reason people use Botox. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they kind of noticed like, hey, I seem to be like growing some hair back. This this is weird. Um, and so, yeah, the, the way in which... Are, you, are they putting it, like, in the top of their head? Uh, uh no. It so, can be anywhere. 
Okay, so so fun little bit of like musculoskeletal anatomy of the head. <laughs> okay. So, uh, oh, yes, I remember what it's called. Okay. You have a single muscle called your occipitofrontalis. Of course. Which, um, so there there's like a muscle along the occiput of your skull, which is just like the back of your skull. Okay. And the the frontal bone, which is like your forehead. Mm-hmm. And it's connected by a single like tendon sheath like like long flat tendon ca- called a aponeurosis like that's what you call like a uh, like a thin sheet of tendon mm-hmm. um but yeah so it's, you basically have like a single muscle with two bellies where the bellies are just separated by the top of your head okay uh, but they're connected by like a single tendon yeah. sheath yeah and so if you're trying to reduce like wrinkling in your forehead with botox yeah very popular place to get botox yeah you get injections into your the the frontal belly of your occipital frontalis um yeah so that would also reduce scalp tension a little bit Uh um and so that that might be how it promotes okay hair regrowth if like the reduction in scalp tension causes a reduction in dht levels because you, you have less of that inflammatory response Anyway, I thought that that was a very interesting idea as well. Yeah. Um, but in a, like effectively, all of these hypotheses, I think, do help explain kind of the the age related paradox as well. Mm-hmm. So, like I mentioned before, and and like anyone can observe, uh, androgenic alopecia progresses with age. Like, yeah, old people lose like have less hair than younger people do <laughs> yes. uh, on average true. in general. And we do also know that like this does seem to be driven by androgen levels. Like like mm-hmm. when you take drugs to stop DHT conversion, um, that does stop the like stop or significantly slow down the progression of hair loss. Um, but like with age, you do get decreases in circulating androgen levels and you get decreases in DHT uh, conversion. And so like if it was all just about androgen stuff you would expect hair loss to be greater in younger adults than older adults and and slow down or stop with age um but you don't so if if like some of the underlying mechanisms do relate to things like decreasing subcutaneous fat thickness or decreases in blood flow or increases in inflammation like all of those changes occur with age Um, And if those are kind of the underlying factors causing kind of this cascade that ultimately results in hair loss, I think that makes a lot more sense than it just being about the androgens per se. Um, And of these possibilities, I I kind of like I am sympathetic to the inflammation related one, like related to scalp tension, Mm -hmm. Um, because like another thing that we observe is that obesity and metabolic syndrome are also risk factors for androgenic alopecia. So uh, people with like insulin resistance, obesity, metabolic syndrome tend to have a higher prevalence of androgenic alopecia, a younger age of onset, and an increasing like progression of of severity Mm -hmm. of androgenic alopecia. Um, And of note, uh, like generally those things are associated with lower testosterone levels. Um, okay. But there 
also associated with increased inflammation yeah. and like decreases in blood flow, but also increases in subcutaneous fat thickness, right? Which kind of throws even more water on on the Turkish guy's idea. Oh. Um, but yeah, so I I think that something related to blood flow or inflammation like does seem pretty plausible as yeah. kind of what kicks this whole process off. Okay. But even independent of that, it does seem to be more intrinsic than anything else. Um, like there's there's strong heritability, like yeah. identical twins. If one goes bald, the other one's probably going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to run in the family, uh, as, as it were. And there have also been like studies finding associations between like genetic differences in androgen receptor polymorphisms and and risk of baldness. So like it does seem to be like mostly genetic, even independent of all of these other mechanisms. Like, you know, maybe your your mom and dad just have occipitofrontalis muscles that like predispose the top of your head to getting inflamed. Uh, (laughs) And like whatever, like it it is what it is. Um, And so, yeah, like, even if, like, in the worst case scenario, creatine causes hair loss, it's probably not really even causing hair loss. Like, if you are going to lose your hair anyways, like, it might just make you start losing your hair a little bit sooner or a little bit faster yeah. than you would have otherwise. Right. Like, only about 15% of men have little to no baldness by the age of 70. So, like, it's it's coming for all of us, or the vast majority of us. And so, like... Yeah, those eh, smug 75-year-olds with a full head of hair well, are rare. I mean, we're, we're getting more of them. Because, like, the, the hair loss drugs, they started, like, early to mid-90s. And so, like, you're... Dude, if one of the things that I often notice and a lot of people remark upon when watching old media is just like how much older everyone looks yeah and i think like, like a lo- seinfeld yeah like yeah. I, th- I think a lot of that's botox i think a lot of it's plastic surgery but also like you just see way more bald guys in the <laughs> 80s than you do currently <laughs> and uh yeah yeah that's because like F- finasteride i think launched in 94 like s- sometime in the mid 90s mm-hmm. um but yeah so people just take hair loss drugs now yeah it's very popular yeah i mean you see advertisements for them everywhere all the time yes absolutely uh (laughs) so you 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 know what i'm laughing about yeah let's let's just talk about it uh (laughs) hims and hers commercials (laughs) oh my god uh do do you want to just like i feel like i've been talking a lot yeah you want to talk about these just godforsaken commercials a little bit (laughs) sure i mean i don't think this is particularly useful but it is funny um, so we get a lot of commercials for the company's hymns and hers when we're watching Hulu shows. And so basically it's like, there are a lot of companies like this where you can kind of fill out an online quiz or like answer some questions and you get a prescription from a doctor. It's all online. So it makes it really easy to get prescriptions for different drugs. It's like, it's like extremely low touch telemedicine. Yes. And then yeah. it gets shipped to your house. I think they got really, really popular during COVID, mm-hmm. which makes sense because people didn't want to leave their house, but they still had needs for medication. And now like these companies have just blown up. But the hers commercials, the ones targeted to women, are all about like anxiety and depression and like needing medication for that. 
Whereas the commercials for men are just all about erectile dysfunction and hair loss. And it just is and, very funny to compare like and, what... And, and testosterone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just very funny to compare like what they perceive to be the main issues that the different sexes face. Like men are losing their hair. Women are depressed. Yeah. And, and I mean, also just what's being promoted. It's just like, hey... You want to live a better life, ladies? Well, I mean, nothing's actually going to get better in your life. So just, like, take some drugs to make you feel better. And for the men, it's just like, look, fellas, like, I know what's getting you down. Like, it's (laughs) it's good to be you, but, like, eh, you don't want to lose your hair and you want a hard dick. So, like, (laughs) look, those are the two problems you're facing and we can solve them for you. And I just find that very funny yeah it's funny it's also sad <laughs> it's really sad um so yeah uh let's let's get back to to creatine sure um so yeah with all of that said kind of getting into the mechanisms a little bit more like it is about local conversion of testosterone to dht in the scalp not systemic levels and that conversion doesn't seem to be just random. It seems to be driven by things like decreases in scalp blood flow mm-hmm. or um, increases in scalp inflammation. Like we don't, we still don't know exactly what's causing that cascade to kick off, but it seems to be something kind of in that genre. Like the general biochemistry of the scalp is not happy. It's been disturbed. Just, and- just for the listener, Greg is just kind of waving his hands above his head during all of this, just like a wizard. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. Um, But yeah, so essentially just like there are bad vibes on the top of your head and that kicks off. Are there? Yeah. And that kicks off the DHT conversion Mm -hmm. that results in hair loss. Um, But yeah, so circling back to creatine, creatine doesn't increase free testosterone levels. And that is like the testosterone that would make it into the cells to be converted to DHT. Mm. Um, Creatine isn't known to decrease skin blood flow. It's not known to decrease tissue oxygenation. It's not known to increase inflammation. It's not known to cause any changes in subcutaneous fat morphology. Um, and so, like, all, all of the potential mechanistic underpinnings uh, that, that, yeah. you, that would maybe result in increased rates of baldness, there's no evidence suggesting that creatine affects any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and to be... Like, to be clear, it is possible that it does. Like, there's mm-hmm. not much research on those topics. But at the same time, like, the same the same could be said of literally anything you put in your body. Like, I don't know how, um, I don't know. I don't know how rice, like, <laughs> eating rice affects scalp inflammation or skin blood flow. Like, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, that's just not a common thing to look into for just effects of random substances you might ingest mm-hmm. um so yeah like we we don't know that creatine doesn't have those effects but there's also no evidence suggesting that it does have those effects um and so essentially what we're left with is we have one study suggesting that creatine might increase serum dht levels mm-hmm but that's irrelevant here. Yep. Like it, it, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And there's no evidence suggesting that creatine affects any of the things that might actually kind of more directly mechanistically affect hair loss. Yeah. Do you think that that's the reason there hasn't been more research? Um, 
What What do you mean? If it doesn't seem like there are any mechanisms for creatine being associated with hair loss, maybe that's why scientists are like, well, we're not going to look into that because there's not really a mechanism there. Yeah, I mean, well, so so the thing is, like, it's... Like, I, I don't want to conflate absence of evidence with evidence of absence. Yes. Like, it it very well could be that creatine does decrease scalp blood right, flow. Right, right. Um, but it's it's just not known to, yeah. I guess. Uh, and, and I think more than anything, the issue is funding. Cause, yeah. Because, like, you know, any, any, like... So there, there are basically two ways you could run a study to look at the effects of creatine on bald, like balding or mm-hmm. whatever. You could either do a version of a study that's going to be relatively expensive because you could use a, a kind of small sample size, but you're going to have to do a lot of biochemistry mm-hmm. um, and like all of the chemicals and equipment and shit that you need to do that tend to be quite expensive. Right. Or you could do a study that's going to be quite expensive because you need to recruit a large sample, supply them creatine, and observe them for like two, three years. Like a long enough period yeah. of time to see, Baldness. like directly observe, do right. we see changes in, right. in balding rates. Um, and so like you would need, like, so that like there's there's going to be a, a pretty penny involved mm-hmm. in running one of those studies. Um, and I'm sure there are researchers interested in it, but like, where's the funding going to come from? Like they're, they're probably not going to just like directly pull that money from departmental funds. Cause yeah. like that is probably a relatively low priority. Um, you're certainly not going to get like government funding for it. Mm-hmm. Cause like, like the, they don't care, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why, why would they? Um, <laughs> yeah. and then with like a supplement company, mm-hmm. I, I also don't see why they would want to fund that because the thing is the first study uh, suggesting that it might increase serum DHT levels in rugby players, it was, I believe, like an independent study. I don't think it got industry funding, although I, I should check that, but I, I don't believe it did. Um, so if you're a supplement company and you want to fund a study, you're going to have one of two results. Either one, uh, you see the increase in DHT again, mm-hmm. um, which might be bad for product sales, mm-hmm. or you don't see the increase in DHT, but then people say like, wow, this was industry funded. So like, we're, yeah. we're going to trust the first study. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and also like, I don't know, I feel like there's very little overlap between the folks who could actually do like the really, really nitty gritty stuff that would be necessary to look into like scalp blood flow or like taking biopsies of the scalp to look at, like directly look at local levels of 5-alpha reductase or DHT levels or androgen receptor density and people who care about creatine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, yeah, there, there just hasn't been follow-up work uh, looking at this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just to, just, eh, I probably should have put some of this stuff a little bit earlier in the outline, but one, just want to reiterate the only evidence we have even potentially linking creatine to hair loss is a single study looking at its effects on systemic DHT levels, which again, 
are irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a further illustration of that, um, there, so uh, uh, you would take drugs that are kind of similar to hair loss drugs Mm -hmm. if you have benign prostate growth because, well, you wanted, but I I potentially would, uh, because DHT promotes prostate growth. But just as like further evidence that DHT's actions do seem to be like mostly autocrine and paracrine, not systemic. Um, I'm going to link a study in the show notes looking at the effects of transdermal DHT treatment for two years on prostate growth. So basically like rubbing. Yeah. Or I I think it was a patch just like a that would allow DHT to diffuse through the skin. Mm -hmm. So like men in the study used transdermal DHT for two years and it was enough DHT to increase their blood DHT levels tenfold and it had no effect on prostate growth damn like the DHT causing prostate growth is DHT produced in the prostate right much like the DHT causing hair loss is DHT produced in the scalp um and uh yeah so I mean that that just about does it uh a lot of stuff there uh, all of which is to say, like, we can't confidently say that creatine doesn't cause hair loss. But again, the same can be said for nearly anything mm-hmm. you put in your body. And the only study that people might point to to suggest that creatine would cause hair loss, like, for the fifth time, is looking at something completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Like, serum DHT levels do not matter. Like, it's it's not... It's not just that like, oh, the baseline was a little bit low in the creatine condition or like, oh, it's within the normal range. Like none of that fucking matters. Like even even if we did absolutely know that creatine caused an increase in blood DHT levels, that it, that still doesn't give us reason to suspect it would cause baldness. Like, like we would need to see changes in scalp DHT. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah. It's wild though that this one study is kind of what has fueled all of this speculation about it. Oh, for sure. Like, whenever I was researching for this episode and just kind of reading around, like, there are so many articles specifically set to answer the question of does creatine cause hair loss Mm -hmm. because it is such a popular question. Um, And so I could go through a couple of those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, almost all the articles I read about it talk about how creatine likely does not cause hair loss. So just to give a couple examples, um, Men's Health has an article called Don't Blame Creatine for Hair Loss that says uh, creatine remains a perpetual target for rumors and misconceptions among the most powerful that creatine causes hair loss. The myth stemmed from a single early study where the results have yet to be replicated. And they note that research remains ongoing and quote Jose Antonio, who published a paper about creatine myths and is quoted in almost every single article about this. Like he really went on the full media tour. Good for him. Um, But he said the current body of evidence does not indicate that creatine causes hair loss or baldness. Nice. Um, Women's Health had something similar saying in their creatine guide, if you've heard on the grapevine that creatine could cause hair loss, fret not, it's BS. And they quote a physiologist and nutrition scientist who says there's no existing literature to show that hair loss is a side effect of creatine supplementation. And a Sports Illustrated article 
also states that creatine supplement supplementation doesn't cause hair loss and cites the Jose Antonio paper again. Nice. So I, when I was like looking through this, I was confused because, you know, so many people ask this question. So many people think that creatine does cause hair loss. But then when you actually look into it, if you look at any of these articles, even from mainstream press, like they're all saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And obviously they're not telling the whole story like you were able to do here, but they should be assuaging people's fears and it just seems to not be working. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, um, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of it is just kind of like related to the general concept of loss aversion. Yeah. Like it, like people tend to be generally risk averse and um one so one i think that there's a pretty common cultural image of what like gym guys look like yeah and it's oftentimes bald people um that's true like if, if you think like big muscly folks oftentimes you're picturing yeah, just a bald no person. hair just completely hairless yeah um and i think i mean i think a lot of that's because of steroids yes but uh <laughs> Yeah, so well, just like bodybuilding culture too. Just yeah. like you're gonna shave your body for the stage, yeah. And so like, shave your head too. Yeah, and so I, one, I think I think a lot of people already kind of have this idea that like something these folks are doing is causing hair loss. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like there is this this one again totally irrelevant study on creatine that. Unless you dig into the the biochemistry enough, like I I can see why it might make some people concerned, um, and then like yeah, it's like most people don't want to lose their hair, mm -hmm. and I I think that just the suggestion that something might cause hair loss is enough that like even even if you accept that the balance of evidence suggests that like eh, it probably doesn't or at least there's not strong reason to to think yeah. it would just that that just the fact that that idea got planted yes. in your mind is still enough to scare people off of it and maybe repeat to other folks like yeah it might cause hair loss you know yeah yeah there is actually um a article about it on hymns.com we nice. just talked about them but they say um there's no definitive scientific evidence linking hair loss and creatine supplements. But then they say the converse of that is also true. There's no definitive scientific evidence that rules out hair loss as a potential side effect of creatine supp supplements. So I think that that's like... Which, which is also true. It's true. Yeah. But I think that that's what people get really hung up on. Yeah. And that's why like when they see anecdotes, and there are so many anecdotes on like Reddit... And I like even went through all the old like bodybuilding.com forums, like looking for when people were talking about creatine and hair loss. And they've been doing that since this study came out. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people say this has happened to me and it ruined my life basically. And that's really uh, like people, people really take that seriously. Like they're really scared of that when they see somebody else saying it. Yeah, no, I mean, I... You know, I, I, I see where they're coming from. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, eh, a couple of things. One is once people have in their head that, like, something causes some bad outcome, mm -hmm. what they're going to want is evidence to the contrary. Right. 
And generally, it's not sufficient to say the evidence, the positive evidence to support your position is very weak. Mm -hmm. Generally, they want evidence that, like direct evidence that that thing is not true. Yes. But in that case, like you're you're asking, like like it's it's much easier to demonstrate something than to like conclusively demonstrate the opposite yeah. of the thing. Yeah. Um, because like yeah, if if creatine caused hair loss. It would be pretty straightforward. Like, a, you know, it would be easy to run a study for a while and say, like, oh, hey, look, people taking creatine, their hair is getting thinner. Yeah. But when it comes to, like, fully ruling something out, then it's a lot tougher because a similar study could find no relationship, but people might criticize the funding source or say, like, ah, it didn't run long enough or, oh, the dosage was too low or, mm -hmm. like any number of other things. Um, and yeah, like, I don't know. There, it, It's a matter of burden of proof, right? Like it, there's no, there, there's, there's not, it's just a topic where there's not much evidence period. Right. And so like, there's not evidence to support it, but by the same token, there's not evidence to refute it. Yeah. And, so, and that just leaves a huge vacuum and it can just be filled up with, you know, people just speculating yeah. based on what their friends and what the bros at the gym said. For sure. And I mean, most people who experience hair loss when they start taking creatine are probably people who are going to start losing their hair anyways. Yeah. And then they just blame it on creatine because they've heard this thing and they're just kind of more tuned into it. Um, like maybe you weren't noticing your hair falling out in the shower, even if it was before. And now you start because you took creatine and you're afraid of it happening. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a lot of it. I, I think that one, it's it's a matter of like, a lot of people get into lifting when they're in their like early to mid 20s to maybe like early to mid 30s. Yeah. Which if you're gonna lose your hair, that's probably around when it's gonna start. Mm -hmm. Like some people start losing their hair in their teens and boy, howdy, do I feel for them. But like, that's that's a small minority. You just gotta own it at that point. Yeah. yeah. And there, there are also very few people who are going to lose a lot of their hair that haven't started losing any into their 50s. Mm -hmm. Like usually if you're going to lose your hair, 20s or 30s is around when it starts. It's going to start happening, yeah. 20s or 30s is also around when a lot, a lot of people start getting into resistance training or getting into it enough to start taking supplements. Yeah. And, so and I, also probably just kind of tuning into their bodies more too. Yeah, yeah, because you, you, can, you can treat your body like a rental when you're 19, yeah. but... Yeah, you, you start getting into your late twenties, early thirties, and you're like, yeah, let's let's start paying attention to stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's part of it. And another thing is, um, yeah, like like you said, I I think that there's a tendency, and and we talked about this on the last episode as well. There's a tendency for, um, making assumptions about causal connections to things that are only temporally associated, um. And what you choose as the causal factor is largely just based on, like, what you've heard floating around. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, uh, like we, we talked about this in relation to, like, headaches and aspartame in the last yeah. episode. Uh, or, or just, like, any number of things in aspartame where it's just, like, a lot of the shit people attribute to aspartame is probably not caused by aspartame. Mm -hmm. But... You've heard somewhere that aspartame can cause this thing. You experience the thing. 
aspartame didn't cause the thing, but you assume that it did. Right. And I, I think that's a lot of it for creatine. Like, yeah. I, I, think a, I think a lot of people probably don't really think that creatine causes hair loss. But then, yeah, they start getting into their mid-20s, early 30s, start losing a little bit of hair. And they're like, ah, fuck, I started losing my hair. Well, I've heard this thing about creatine. I guess that's what did it. Right. But it's also like, eh, well, your dad and all of your uncles are bald. Yeah. So, like, maybe it's not the creatine, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah, I, I suspect that's a lot of it. Yeah. But again, it is also possible that it causes hair loss. Yes. But it, it it's just simply the case that there is no direct evidence now that it does. And the study people cite about DHT is again irrelevant serum levels serum levels of dht don't influence hair loss Mm -hmm. let's move on okay okay so next um let's see so the the next thing i'm going to talk about i figure i should ask you about this before i actually bring up the topic okay so Lindsay, have you come across people discussing or articles discussing how creatine actually uh, works to increase muscle growth? Um, I think th- this is another thing that when I read it, my brain just kind of shuts off. But I think like um, my understanding of what those articles are saying is that like it, it just provides that additional energy, which allows you to do like a couple more reps Mm -hmm. and then just being able to do a couple more reps is what is causing the, um, whatever muscle gain or strength gain that you're Mm -hmm. experiencing from taking creatine. Okay. So I was hoping that's what you would say. Okay, good. Cause that is the common answer you'll hear. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wrong. Oh. Uh, so it, it does do that, but I don't think that is the actual way that it increases muscle growth. Um, so yeah, just, just to expand a little bit on what you said. Like when you ask people like, oh, hey, like creatine increases muscle growth, but like how does it do that? Mm-hmm. The typical answer you'll get is what we talked about up top with the, the mechanism of how creatine influences performance. Basically, you take creatine, it increases your phosphocreatine levels. That gives you a route for faster ATP resynthesis, especially during high-intensity exercise. So that uh, like increases strength endurance, increases anaerobic performance yeah. a little bit. Just let, lets you work a little bit harder, do a few more reps. Right. Um, and people say like, oh, hey, like that's, that is how it... Uh, like allows you to increase muscle growth it increases performance therefore you can increase the stimulus you place on your muscles therefore they grow more yeah a secondary mechanism that you'll sometimes see discussed uh relates to how creatine can act as a weak buffer so uh creatine can can basically like soak up uh some hydrogen ions which is like what directly causes acidosis like a drop in ph in the muscle and also uh when like after after ATP is used, mm-hmm. there are like inorganic phosphates kind of float, floating around in the muscle. And a combination of acidosis and elevated free phosphate levels seem to like directly and mechanistically uh, reduce muscle contractility and decrease exercise performance. And since creatine can kind of soak up some of those hydrogen ions mm-hmm. and some of those free phosphates, 
that should improve performance as well, specifically like anaerobic performance. What does acidosis mean? Uh, just like your, your muscles are kind of acidic. The pH level is lower. Okay. Um, so yeah, th those are those are the two things you'll often hear discussed. And the model is essentially creatine does these things mm -hmm. that, it, that can acutely increase exercise performance and that increase in performance increases the stimulus. The increase in stimulus is what then allows creatine supplementation to increase muscle growth or strength gains. And like I said, I don't think that is how it works primarily. And the reason I don't think that's how it works is that there are other supplements that work the same way. Mm. So there are plenty of supplements that primarily work by increasing strength endurance. Uh, so you have like caffeine, you have citrulline malate, you have bicarbonate, you have beta alanine, you, you have a few others, but like yeah. those are, those are the big ones. And those aren't the ones that are like on the top tier with creatine. Right. Yeah. Like, and they all, in terms of performance during training have effects that are comparable in size to creatine. Okay. And it's the same types of performances that are improved. Like it's mostly high intensity performance or like strength endurance, like anaerobic performance type of stuff. Um, and there are also longitudinal studies looking at the effects of those supplements on muscle growth and they don't increase muscle growth. Hmm. Um, and so I don't think the effects of creatine on performance are the primary reason that creatine influences muscle growth. Okay. Like, like essentially there, there are, there are a couple ways you could look at it. And this is not the episode to go like way far down the rabbit hole of just like a mechanistic accounting of hypertrophy signaling. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, like one, one easy way to think about it, I mm -hmm. guess, is that, you know, if the most reps you can get with a particular load is say 10 reps, mm -hmm. then in general, as you get a little bit closer to failure, the stimulus will tend to increase. If you, if you, for just some other reason, like l let's say, let's say you've done some cardio and like your general endurance has increased and now you can do 12 reps with the same load. Uh, if you, but, but not, you know, n not due to your resistance training, just like the kind of your, your local metabolic stuff in that muscle has improved. Yeah. Um, if you now just stop at 10 reps, that will probably be a, a smaller stimulus than it would have been when 10 reps was the most you could have done. Mm -hmm. And now to get the same stimulus, you need to do those 12 reps that you're now capable of doing. Yes. And I think that with supplements that acutely increase performance, I kind of think that's what's going on. It's like you can maybe get a couple more reps, mm -hmm. but now also to get the same stimulus for adaptation, you need to do those couple extra reps. Right. Like you now so have you're the working just as hard either way. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of what's going on. But there are other like mechanisms by which creatine could influence muscle growth. So there, there was a review paper by Chilibeck and colleagues that was published in 2017, I believe. Uh, like everything else, it will be linked in the show notes. And figure two in that paper um, just kind of sketches out these mechanisms. And it, it's it's open access, so anyone should be able to, to look at this. Um, 
But essentially, like of the potential mechanisms listed in this paper by which creatine could influence muscle growth, the like direct effects on phosphocreatine and exercise capacity are only like one of the five things listed. Um, and most of the other things are things that are kind of like more known to be like directly related to hypertrophy. Okay. So for instance, creatine supplementation affects myogenic regulatory factors such as, and this probably won't mean anything to you or most people listening. Perfect. Uh, MYF5, MyoD, Myogenin, and MRF4, um, potentially due to its effects on IGF1 or potentially through some other mechanism. And yeah, like you don't need to know what any of that means, but okay. es essentially what myogenic regulatory factors are, are things... Uh, not exactly like, but similar to what I talked about with how steroid hormones work, mm -hmm. where essentially they bind to a receptor, go to the nucleus, and directly influence gene transcription. Okay. Uh, myogenic regulatory factors aren't exactly like that, but they're they're kind of like that. Like they're they're these little there's the they're these little guys, these little <laughs> hormones, these little <laughs> proteins that do through various mechanisms influence gene transcription. Okay. And I mean, ultimately, that's that's the name of the game when it comes to building muscle. Like, people talk about, like, ah, tension, metabolic stress, whatever. But, like, directly and most acutely, what, what you need is you need something to go to the nucleus of a muscle cell mm -hmm. and say, hey, let's, uh, let's transcribe this gene that says, let's build more actin or myosin proteins. Right. And then... That needs to go to a ribosome that will actually build those proteins. And then, yeah, like that that's how that's how protein is synthesized. Like that's how size in a muscle is accrued. Um, <laughs> and so ultimately, like myogenic regulatory factors are like more directly working on that process to directly influence gene tra gene transcription in a way that promotes net anabolism. That's cool. Yeah. And so I, th I think that's the primary thing that mm -hmm. creatine that is sense. doing. Uh, creatine also uh, might decrease myostatin levels. Uh, do, do, do you know about myostatin lens? I feel like you do. I've heard that word before. I cannot give you a description of, of it, though. I, I'll give you a hint. I talked about it quite a bit on our trip to Belgium. Oh, yeah. It has to do with the cows. Yeah. The really muscular cows and yeah, the dogs. Yeah, the Belgian blues, yes. the bully whippets, Yeah, the like there's mice. something. there's something about them, about their myostatin levels that are either like too high or too low or something. Too low. Too low. Yeah. And like they just get super jacked. Like they look insane. Yeah. So if, if you have like no myostatin, you get dummy thick, like super jacked. Uh, myostatin, essentially what it does is it, uh, reduces satellite cell activation. And so like one of the okay. things that happens as muscles grow is you have these stem cells that are kind of floating around the muscle fibers called, called satellite cells, and they need to be activated and then proliferate and then mature. And then they donate their, their nuclei to the muscle and that becomes more myonuclei. And like, as fibers get bigger and bigger and bigger, they need more and more nuclei to like m have sufficient transcriptional capacity is, is what it's called just to like be be able to tell enough ribosomes to produce enough proteins to keep the the fiber the size it currently is mm -hmm. um so yeah like myostatin generally promotes 
smaller muscle fibers or like decreases in rates of growth due to slowing down that process of satellite cell activation and myonuclear accretion. And so creatine uh, reduces myostatin levels to some extent. So that okay. that could also be a way that Getting it's... Getting you closer to the cows. Yeah. Uh, so that, that could also be like, again, a more direct way that it influences muscle growth uh, other than just like improving performance. Yeah. And then finally, uh, creatine can also buffer free radicals, which... We are not getting into redox biochemistry in this episode. That's that is good. too big a can of worms. But essentially, like there's there's some level of oxidative stress that is good. There is some level that is bad. Mm-hmm. And like having a, a positive response to exercise, largely like a, a important part of it seems to be like kind of fi- finding the happy yeah. middle ground there. Yeah. Um, so like a, a great example here is like high levels of antioxidant intake mm-hmm. or, um, I mean, I guess inflammation slightly different, but it's it's related. It's so like taking NSAIDs, for instance. Um, for younger adults, that reduces muscle growth. Like it, it mm-hmm. reduces oxidative stress too much so you don't get um, the, the adaptive response you're looking for. For older adults that have higher levels of inflammation, mm-hmm. those things might actually increase muscle growth a little bit. Because mm-hmm. it'll bring it back to like a, a happy medium. Yeah, like they're they're further along that bell curve. So like bringing it back down brings Makes you back sense. towards the optimal yeah. levels. Um, so yeah, like creatine's ability to buffer free radicals, it's probably not particularly relevant to how it might influence muscle growth in younger adults, but maybe, maybe in older adults. Um, but yeah, so I, I think... those are the more likely mechanisms for how creatine like directly influences muscle growth. Mm -hmm. If it was just about acute performance, you would expect caffeine, citrulline, malate, beta alanine, like several other things to improve hypertrophy in the same way and to the same extent that you see with creatine. And you just don't. So I don't think the effects on performance are the primary factor uh, contributing to to creatine's effects on muscle growth. I do think it's mostly the myogenic regulatory factors with maybe the effects on myostatin and maybe the effects on buffering free radicals playing secondary roles. And then if the effects on acute performance are relevant, I think I think the magnitude of that effect is is pretty small. Yeah. Why do you think that that misunderstanding has kind of spread around so much? about like the more simplistic definite or the more simplistic explanation um oh man i think one i think one is like for for marketing purposes simple explanations tend to work better Mm -hmm. um like yeah and the explanation is correct right it's just like there's the other things that are just like more directly impacting muscle. Yeah, the the effects on performance, like that that is legit. Like yeah. that is a thing that happens. Um and so yeah, like I I think that it just feels intuitive to someone to be like, "Oh, hey, like muscle yeah. volume is important for for growth. This thing helps you increase your volume by uh improving ATP turnover and like maybe reducing acidosis a little bit." Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, it helps you perform better, that helps you grow more, whatever. I, I think that that makes for a good sales pitch. Yeah. Two is just kind of the basic biochemistry of creatine was known way before most of the kind of 
effects on myogenic regulatory factors or myostatin or whatever was yeah. known. Yeah. Like we've we've known how creatine works since the 60s. Right. Like we know we've known how it improves ATP recycling. I think the I think the buffering stuff, I think that may have been the 80s, but like we knew that before uh before people actually started taking creatine. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was probably the most plausible explanation at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think there's a bit of inertia associated with it. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I think that those are the two biggest that things. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, the next thing. This is, this is, I believe, a myth that has resulted in the attempt to bust a myth. So oh, man, um, mythception. Yes. So among like like quote unquote evidence based fitness folks mm -hmm. who are generally pro creatine, you will sometimes encounter the claim that like uh, pe people say creatine causes bloating or fluid retention, and and these folks will push back and say, mm -mm, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Like. You absorb it, it goes into your muscles, it increases intramuscular creatine levels, intramuscular hydration. Mm -hmm. And so the increase you see on on the scale is just about like increased fluid content in the in the muscles. Yeah. Like it's not actually causing bloating or fluid retention. And I think that that's mostly wrong. Okay. Uh, or at least partially wrong. So have have you come across the claim that creatine causes bloating? Or like when you've tried it previously, did you, did you notice that for yourself? I don't know if I noticed it for myself. I'm bloated all the time because I just have all kinds of weird food issues. So who knows if it was from the creatine. But in terms of like what I've come across um, on the internet, I mean, I mentioned that like in the macro factor group, like a lot of people talk about weight gain when they first start using creatine and mm -hmm. like feeling more bloated. Um, I don't know. Is that the same thing? Like the weight gain thing and the bloating thing? Um, like they're, they're related. Okay. Essentially, people who are pro-bloating would say, oh, you're up two pounds because you're bloated. And people uh, against that idea would say, mm -mm, that's just two pounds of additional like creatine and fluid retention in your muscles. But that's that's not bloating. Okay. I've yeah. heard more of like the two pounds because of the creatine and like fluid retention. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, like the there is... There is this common claim that creatine causes bloating and people who are pro-creatine will push back against that and say, again, it's not bloating. It's just increasing muscle creatine con concentrations. Some fluid comes along with that. So like you are seeing the number on the scale go up, but that, that's just because of fluid content in your muscles yeah. themselves. Uh, and the thing is like the math just doesn't work out for that. And so this is, this is, a, this is a math section and oh. I apologize. Okay. Maybe maybe an audio medium is not the best for this, but it let's it, give it a it's shot. It's also I think pretty straightforward. Okay. Okay. So, muscle concentration of creatine in people who don't supplement with creatine is about 120 millimoles per kilogram of dry mass of the muscle. So if you take like a biopsy and and dry it out and then just look at the contents of the powder, mm -hmm. uh, the concentration is about 120 millimoles per kilogram of dry mass. Okay. When people take creatine, like when they when they supplement creatine and fully saturate their muscle creatine stores, that seems to top out 
at a concentration of of about 160 millimoles per kilogram of dry mass with supplementation. Okay, so that's the starting point. Then muscle is about three quarters water. So when we go from dry mass to wet mass, we're essentially dividing the concentrations in the dry mass by three. Okay. Or, or by four, I mean, mm-hmm. because the the dry mass is about a quarter of the total mass. Mm-hmm. So without creatine supplementation, you're seeing concentrations of about 30 millimoles per kilogram of wet mass and about 40 millimoles per kilogram with supplementation. Okay. Following me so far, difference of about one third or mm-hmm. about 10 millimoles per kilogram. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we get into everyone's favorite from high school chemistry, stoichiometry. Um, what? You, you did it. I don't remember. <laughs> like converting molar masses to like actual grams and shit. Maybe. Avogadro's number. That sounds familiar. Okay. It, yeah. It's, it's fine. No one, no one uses this in day-to-day life. This is, this is a totally fine thing to have forgotten. Um, anyway, so the molar mass of creatine is, that, that is the mass of a single creatine molecule okay. multiplied by Avogadro's number. <laughs> so like, what is that? Like six, I, I don't remember What this. is it? I think it's like 6.02. me? I think it's 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd or something oh, like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just, just pull that out. Just Google it. I'm, I, I feel, I think that's wrong, but close enough. Whatever. So when you multiply, I'm, I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> whatever you don't need here here's what it looks like yes 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd hell yeah i'm no one has ever said that so excitedly i'm very proud of myself for remembering that uh anyway you have a mental illness i i know i do anyway so the molar mass of creatine is 131.13 grams per mole so if we're looking at a change in creatine of 10 millimoles that is uh 131.13 times 10 divided by a thousand since it's millimoles to get how many actual grams of creatine we're talking about and it's uh one point it's about 1.3 grams of creatine okay in total um per kilogram of muscle Mm -hmm. so that that is how much additional creatine per a kilogram of muscle you are storing after creatine supplementation when you go from 120 to 160 uh, millimoles per kilogram of dry mass. That seems like very little. Yeah, it's it's not a ton. So yeah, uh, if, if you took just like 2.2 pounds of human muscle tissue pre and post creatine supplementation, you'd, you'd see about one, one and a half grams of additional creatine in that 2.2 pounds of muscle. Okay, and then creatine, like a lot of things, is stored in the muscle with about four grams of water sticking to it. Like a gram of creatine is stored with about four grams of water. Um, So that is a total increase in mass attributable to creatine of about 5.3 grams per kilogram of muscle. Uh, Or in other words, an increase in like total muscle mass directly attributable to creatine plus water Mm -hmm. of about 0.53%. Okay, so then the next step. In an untrained male, uh, you tend to start with about 30 to 35 kilograms of skeletal muscle mass. Okay. 
Um, I, I think people assume it's a lot higher. I think a lot of people kind of assume that skeletal muscle com- comprises like most of your total fat-free mass or lean mass, but it it's about half in in general. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if, if someone's like 80 kilos, like 20% body fat, um, about 40% of their body mass would be muscle mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, that that's like 30, 35 kilos for, for most untrained males. Okay. Um, and so when you... When you multiply that out, like a 0.53% increase in mass for that amount of muscle mass, you're looking at a total increase in body mass directly attributable to creatine plus water in muscle tissue of about 160 to 185 grams, which is not much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what would that be? Like three and a half to like point. Three five to point four pounds, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not much at all. Yeah. And so, we also know creatine supplementation causes an acute increase in body mass of like one one and a half percent, or like around a kilo, around two pounds. So it's increasing body mass by about a kilo. Mm-hmm. It's increasing uh, like muscle weight due to increases in creatine and water in the muscle uh, of like 160 to 185 grams. Mm -hmm. So that means that only about 15 to 20% of the total weight increase when people take creatine is directly attributable to creatine uptake and associated water uptake in the muscle itself. Yeah. The other 80, 85%, I don't know. What is it? I don't fucking know. Um, But... You know, the kind of catch-all terms of, like, bloating or, like, general fluid retention. I feel like those aren't, like, terrible labels to put on it. Because there's not another label you can put on it, it seems like. I mean, I do suspect a lot of it is just, like, digestive tract contents and, like, Mm. an increase in water in the digestive tract. Because, uh, especially if you're doing a loading phase, maybe you've, like, fully saturated the creatine transporters in your gut. And so, like... You just have like extra undigested stuff and your intestines will just dilute that down with water. Um, maybe hmm. some, maybe some of some of it's just like hanging out in your blood and you get like an increase in like a small increase in blood volume as a result. Maybe it's going to some other tissues. Like I, I sincerely don't know how to account for the other like 80, 85% of that Interesting. mass. But the mass that is directly attributable to creatine and water in the muscle is a pretty small minority of the total mass increases that we observe when people take creatine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like people people who who try to bust the myth that creatine causes bloating, I think they're more so the ones contributing to the myth. Like I think creatine probably does cause a bit of bloating. Mm-hmm. Like the the acute increases in body mass that are attributable to creatine supplementation are not fully attributable to increases in muscle mass. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the other 80-85% don't know what it is, but I I think just bloating fluid yeah. retention terms like that are probably decent ways to describe it. Yeah. And does that kind of even out after you've been taking it for a couple weeks? Uh, like it doesn't go away, but it flattens out. Yeah, okay. Like you'll, if you do like a loading phase or whatever, like your, your body mass might increase by about a kilo in mm-hmm. three or four days. And then 
it just kind of like stays elevated at about a kilo higher than it was um, un- until you stop taking creatine and then you, you get a small decrease. Um, you know, I, th- I think it probably does also decrease a little bit. I don't really know, but mm-hmm. yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, the last little myth I wanted to address is actually a pretty, a pretty recent myth. Um, but before I say what it is, I just want to ask, Lens, have you come across any information or discussion about creatine dosing? Like if, if I just asked you, mm-hmm. how much creatine should people take? Uh, about, about, what would, about what would you say? I think the number that I see is five grams per day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also, like I also know about the loading phase that a lot of people do in which it's like significantly higher. I don't know what that number usually is. I mean, we've been talking about it, so it's like 20, 25 probably. Um, And then the most recent time that I saw somebody talking about a much higher dose was on the Instagram post that we had for your creatine Mm. research spotlight a couple weeks ago. And somebody was saying that they take a much, much higher dose specifically for the mental benefits, mm-hmm. like the brain effects that you can get from taking creatine, which yeah. I know nothing about. Um, but I think that if somebody is doing that, then they might take like 20 grams per day mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Uh, have you seen people promoting like kind of maintenance doses exceeding five grams for like muscle effects? I don't think so. Okay. Well, that that's good. That's good. Um, so yeah, you're, you're correct that people do take more than five. So first, you're correct that kind of the typical recommendation is about five grams a day. Mm-hmm. Um, you are also correct that people will sometimes take more as a loading <laughs> dose. This feels like a uh, quiz. No, it's, it's not. Like you, you, I'm nervous if I was correct or not. You're you, you were correct across the board. Okay, great. I, I'm I'm just reiterating for information retention <laughs> okay, for the audience. Okay. Um, and yeah, you're you're correct that if you want some of the potential like mental or cognitive benefits of creatine supplementation, which is beyond the scope of this episode, mm-hmm. the the research suggests that like you probably need more than five grams a day for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the stock recommendation for a maintenance dose of creatine for the muscle-related effects is like three to five grams a day. Mm-hmm. But there is a there's an idea floating around that seems to currently be on the upswing in popularity mm-hmm. that lifters, like okay. serious lifters, actually need to take more than five grams a day. Mm-hmm. Um and that yeah that that most people are underdosing creatine and that if you're if you're not noticing the effects of the creatine you're taking it's because you're too jacked because you're a serious lifter and you need to take more oh my god so to start with like if you're not noticing effects of creatine supplementation it's it's especially if you're an omnivore or since these fucking people exist now carnivores um (laughs) It's probably just because you're getting like a supplemental amount of creatine just from the food you're eating. Mm-hmm. Like most of the creatine in the human diet comes from meat consumption. Mm-hmm. So like the 
average person, like the average omnivore consumes like one, one and a half grams of creatine a day just okay. from the meat they consume. Mm-hmm. If you, if you have like a protein target that's like two, three times higher than what the typical person is aiming for because you're a serious lifter and you're getting most of that from animal products, it's very possible that you're already consuming three to five grams of creatine a day Dang. just from the meat you're eating. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah, like you, you might already have muscle creatine stores that are like 160 millimoles per kilogram of dry weight. Right. And so it's like supplemental creatine is not going to do anything. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea that most lifters are underdosing, um, co- comes from the fact, and, and like, this is fairly understandable that like a lot of the early research on creatine dosing was performed on untrained subjects who are less muscular than serious lifters. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to increase muscle creatine levels. Mm -hmm. So if someone has 50% more muscle mass, theoretically and and practically, like this is probably true, they probably would need to consume about 50% more protein than the person with way less muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I think a lot of people don't realize is the common kind of stock recommendation of five grams a day is already a better safe than sorry recommendation. Mm-hmm. That is already comfortably more than most people actually need. Like two to three grams a day is probably sufficient for the vast majority of people, mm-hmm. including a lot of lifters. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think I think what's currently driving the present surge in this is there was a recent episode of the Huberman Lab podcast where mm. he he where Andrew Huberman said he uses ten grams a day for okay. for the muscle effects I believe like not specifically for the cognitive effects mm. which like ten grams a day for cognitive effects that would probably be a little underdosed but he's like yeah like I'm a serious lifter I'm jacked need more creatine ten grams a day a lot of people take his his recommendations seriously so that seems to be the thing like driving the current surge and in interest in higher creatine doses. That but, makes but sense. This is something that kind of ebbs and flows. Like I've in my time kind of consuming fitness content, I've seen multiple waves of people being interested in consuming more creatine, saying like, ah, five grams might be too little for serious lifters. So yeah, I, I assume this will be evergreen. Mm-hmm. Like this once uh once the the wave from the Huberman episode subsides, like this will come back in a couple years. Yeah. Like it, it always it makes, does. That makes sense, yeah. Um so yeah, let's let's talk about where the kind of like dosing information for, for creatine comes from and, and how we can be fairly confident that five grams a day is already more than sufficient for almost everybody. Okay. So there was a so there there was a lot of like older research on creatine dosing, but probably the best and most relevant for our discussion here is a classic 1996 paper from Holtman and colleagues. Nice. Published in the prestigious Journal of Applied Physiology. And um, this was a study with, so there, there were three arms to the study. One of the arms was looking at like rates of creatine concentration decreases after people stop using it mm-hmm. not going to talk about that one much like w- when i said it takes about a month for creatine levels to go back to baseline after supplementation uh that's what that's based on like okay. they had one group that just went through a loading phase stopped taking it looked to see how long it took to get back to baseline seemed to take about four weeks there were two other studies that were like written up in this paper one of them um 
was looking at muscle creatine concentrations after a loading phase, a six-day loading phase where people took 20 grams of creatine per day, okay. followed by 30 days of taking two grams a day. Uh, and then the other experiment was people just taking three grams a day every day for 28 days. Nice. And both groups achieved the same muscle creatine concentrations, mm -hmm. around 150, 160 millimoles per kilogram of dry mass. Um, and, and and that's noteworthy because, like, the loading phase itself, like, that definitely saturates muscle creatine levels. Mm -hmm. So you do the loading phase, you get up to that 150, 160, and then if two grams a day is sufficient to maintain that, yeah. that that's strong evidence that it's sufficient to maintain maximal concentrations because you know the loading phase got you to those maximal concentrations. Interesting. So this is just a quick aside, but it's possible that if you wanted to, you could just do creatine like as a loading phase every couple months. And then just if you're eating enough to get two grams per day, that you could sustain that? That's a good question. To which I don't have a good okay, answer. Okay, sorry. Um, no, I mean, like, uh, mm, I, I think if you're already, like, if the typical person is eating, like, one, one and a half grams of creatine a day, yeah. I, I think that if you're already getting closer to, like, three, three, four grams in your diet, mm -hmm. I don't think you need, I suspect you probably don't need you to. You don't need the loading phase. I suspect like, you don't need to use creatine at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you probably have, like, Well, I was saying, like, if you are eating, like, more, like, two grams per, per day. Um, I mean, if, if you're trying to keep your muscle creatine levels absolutely topped off, mm -hmm. um, I don't know why you would do that. Cause like, even if you weren't fully back to like 120, uh, millimoles per kilogram or mm -hmm. whatever, uh, you're, you are going to be, you are going to have lower creatine levels at the end of that month yeah, than yeah, you would yeah. have at the start. Um, and also just. Since a loading dose is like four or five times as much creatine as like a maintenance dose, taking a maintenance dose every day for that month would cost you the same as doing the loading phase for a week every month. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So like, I don't know why you would do that, <laughs> but like... Okay, just it, a theoretical, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad question to yeah. ask, but like practically, I think it would just be worse in all regards. Perfect, great. Uh <laughs> so... I asked that question so that you won't do that, listener. Perfect. Um, but yeah, so essentially, like, the, the loading phase gives you a point of comparison. Like, yeah. it, it gets you to max concentrations. So if you don't see a decrease during that phase of taking two grams a day, that lets you know that two grams was enough to maintain yes. max concentrations. And then with comparison to the other group as well, the group just taking three grams a day without a loading phase they got up to the same muscle creatine concentrations as the group that did the loading phase, mm -hmm. which, again, is pretty strong evidence that the three grams a day was sufficient to achieve mm -hmm. maximum muscle creatine levels. How long did it take for them to match? Um, they, they were pretty close after 21 days, okay. and they were, they were there at 28. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, both of those strategies led to the same maximum muscle creatine concentrations, and the two grams a day was sufficient mm -hmm. to sustain the, the creatine levels. And so these were not totally untrained subjects, but they were, um, I, I believe, I believe they, the authors noted that like, they, yeah, here, here's the, the direct quote. All subjects undertook some form of regular exercise, but none was highly trained. 
So these weren't like super serious lifters. Mm-hmm. Um, but like t- two to three grams did seem like about enough for them. Okay. Um, the average body mass in the loading phase followed by two grams maintenance group was about 85 kilos. Uh, it was about 75 kilos for just the straight three gram a day group. Mm-hmm. And so the two gram a day maintenance dose in the first group worked out to about 0.023 grams per kilogram of body mass. And for the three gram a day group, that worked out to about 0.039 grams per kilogram. And so like one of the, one of like the, the criticisms you'll see from people saying, ah, you need to take way more creatine is they'll say like the five gram a day recommendation isn't scaled to body mass, but a a recommendation you'll frequently see in the research is actually scaled to body mass. And it's largely based on this paper and it's just 0.03 grams per kilogram. Cause that's like in between kind of the, what, what we knew to be the sufficient maintenance dose in the one group and what we knew to be a dose that led to maximum concentrations in the other group. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like 0.03 grams per kilogram is already a body weight scaled recommendation that you'll frequently see. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, if you're like an untrained person who's like 70 kilos, that's like 154 pounds, 0.03 grams per kilogram would mean that about two, 2.1 grams of creatine per day should be sufficient to maximize muscle creatine levels and yeah. maintain that maximum concentration. If you're like 100 kilos, like 220, three grams a day should be plenty. If you're like 150 kilos, like 330 pounds, four and a half grams a day should be plenty. Yeah. So that five gram recommendation that, is like, that's all re- that's enough. Yeah, yeah. Like that, that's an extremely better safe than sorry yes. recommendation already. Um, and this largely makes sense. So with creatine intake or creatine supplementation, you're essentially just trying to more than replace urinary losses of creatinine. So in solution, creatine will will spontaneously break down to something called creatinine, mm-hmm. which is uh, be, kind of a byproduct, I guess. But like, it's it's just what creatine will break down to in solution. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you just had water and you dissolved a bunch of creatine into it, about half of it would become creatinine if you just let it sit for months and like reach equilibrium. Yeah. Um, but like the rate at which it decomposes to creatinine is pretty slow. And um, so the, the Holtman study also measured um, like rates of, of creatinine excretion in urine. And it was about 10 millimoles per day, which like given the molar mass of creatinine is like 1.1 grams per day. Uh, looking at some other just sources. So this was uh, the University of Rochester Medical Center. They say that the typical rate of creatinine excretion in urine is about 0.8 to 1.8 grams per day in men and about 0.6 to 1.6 grams per day in women. Mm -hmm. And essentially, like, that is how creatine leaves your body. It leaves your body as creatinine. And so if your total creatine intake exceeds creatinine excretion, you should have a net accretion of creatine. Like, Mm -hmm. you should be maximizing muscle creatine levels with, with, like, a bit of a... A bit of an adjustment. Uh, so, like, the molar mass of creatine is, like, a little bit heavier than creatinine. So, like, your creatine intake does need to be a little bit higher than your creatinine excretion. But essentially, like, yes, yeah, somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, two grams a day of creatine intake 
should be sufficient to exceed creatinine excretion. Um, and that also kind of makes sense because like the typical rates of creatinine excretion are pretty similar to like normal creatine intake in the general population. So like that, that is the deterministic factor. Like the, the concentration of creatine that you achieve in your muscles is based on that balance between creatine intake and creatinine excretion. Mm -hmm. And so like you should kind of expect creatinine excretion to more or less match creatine intake. Um, so yeah, like like theoretically, since that is the the discriminating factor, just like how much creatinine are you excreting that you need to replace with more creatine? Um, if like creatine intake already matches creatinine excretion, like maybe even taking a gram of creatine per day would take a long time to fully saturate your muscle creatine stores, but it might be sufficient. Mm -hmm. Like in one and a half, two grams a day, again, for, for most people would probably actually be a dose that it might take two or three months, but would still saturate your muscle creatine stores and keep them saturated. Hmm. Um, so a, a possible response to this from someone who is big on, on creatine megadosing is that, well, sure, but like, again, the people in the study weren't elite strength athletes and it may not be appropriate to scale to body mass in the first place, which like 0.03 grams per kilogram of body mass is scaling to body mass. But ultimately, we care about muscle creatine levels. And so it might make more sense to scale to muscle mass. Mm. Um, and we can do that. It's easy. So again, like these were fairly typical guys in the Holtman study. We're going to assume they had a fairly typical amount of muscle mass, about 32 kilos, and so like three grams a day is like about 0.094 grams per kilogram of skeletal muscle. And about two grams a day would be about 0.063 or so grams per kilogram of skeletal muscle. So like let's let's use those as our baselines and try to figure out if that's kind of the dosing window we're looking at, how much creatine would outrageously jacked people need <laughs> mm -hmm. to consume if we're scaling to muscle mass. Yeah. And so there's an ideal place to look uh, for this. So there was a, a really cool 2018 paper uh, by Abe and colleagues. The title was Skeletal Muscle Mass in Human Athletes. What is the Upper Limit? Where essentially they recruited 95 extremely muscular athletes, nice, uh, including 43 American football players, 18 powerlifters, 28 sumo wrestlers, and six shot putters, uh, and they were just trying to characterize the limits of human muscularity. That's awesome. Yeah. So they they looked at their their like fat free mass, but then they also so it's hard to directly measure how much skeletal muscle mass people have, but like there's. Mm -hmm. There's a validated equation that is based on like looking at ultrasound thicknesses on I think like eight or nine different sites mm -hmm. and then like scaling to body height and whatnot. And, and these are like muscles that are particularly thick where like most of your like it's going to be pretty representative of your total skeletal muscle yeah. tissue. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a prediction equation, but like it, it's probably it's close enough for government work. OK, Um and so out of these 95 uh, extremely muscular, like super jacked guys, uh, only seven of them had more than 50 kilograms of skeletal muscle tissue, which like that's a shitload. Yeah. And the peak was 59.3 kilograms of skeletal muscle mass. 
That, what sport did he play? Which one was he? Uh, I don't think it's said. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, just just looking at his numbers, I think he's a, a defensive tackle in football. That's Yeah, that's like what I would have guessed, yeah. He, he is a... Cl- he just... The stats look like the classic <laughs> guy that's just going to line up over center and just, just eat up double teams and triple teams to let, to let the linebackers run free. You love to see it. Yeah, th- this guy was a monster. So, um... Shout out. Yeah, his his total body mass was 168.7 kilos. Uh, he had 110.6 total kilos of fat-free mass at 1.9 meters tall. For Americans listening, is about 375. Had like 245 pounds of fat-free mass at 6'3". That's <laughs> that's a beefy lad. That's a big fucking guy. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll just use him as our example for. If we take the numbers from the Holtman study and scale to skeletal muscle mass, how how much would this guy need to consume to maximize muscle creatine concentrations? And so, like, just rounding up, saying, like, yeah, he's got about 60 kilos of, of muscle mass. Using the 2-gram, uh, like, point of reference from the Holtman study, about 0.0625 grams per kilo of skeletal muscle, that would work out to about 3.75 grams for this guy who's a fucking monster. <laughs> and using uh, three grams as that point of comparison, which worked out to about 0.09375 grams per kilogram, uh, for, for again, this absolute tank, that would be uh, like 5.625 grams. So, yeah, like Damn. even for this guy, like five grams a day would be within that range mm-hmm. of amounts that would probably maximize muscle creatine concentrations and maintain maximum concentrations. Mm-hmm. But if if this one guy <laughs> wanted to take a better safe than sorry dose of creatine, yeah, maybe he could bump it up to six grams. But like if you're not <laughs> built like a professional football player, like offensive defensive lineman or a professional sumo wrestler, trust me, five grams a day is plenty. Yeah. Like that is already the better safe than sorry dose. Nice. That's yeah. a great illustration. Thank you. I do my best. All right. So that does it for the pre-prepared material yeah. I have. Is, is there anything else you want to bring up or discuss? No. All right, let's uh, let's get into the questions. Let's do it. So we have three questions that are also related to creatine that came in to the inbox. Again, if you'd like to ask a question for us to answer on the show, uh, send it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. Uh, record a voice clip, max 60 seconds. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll listen to all of them and respond to the ones that we like. So yeah, let's... Uh, Let's listen to the first question. Hi, Greg and Lindsay. Love the new podcast format. Greg, in your article, Don't Close the Door on Creatine Yet, you say that in real terms, the Burke meta-analysis suggests that creatine can help us build muscle about one-third faster on average. Does this mean creatine will simply help us get to our genetic potential faster? Or do you think that it raises the bar on what would otherwise be naturally achievable? Thank you in advance for your thoughts. All right. That was that was Andy Morgan. Shout outs, Andy. Hi, Andy. Uh, rippedbody.com, athletebody.jp. Cool guy. Um, so yeah, this question, 
asking about whether creatine actually increases the total uh, amount of muscle you can grow or whether it just might help you gain muscle a little bit faster. I think it's primarily the latter. Um, I do think, like, obviously just increasing muscle creatine concentrations and the water that comes along with it. If you were at your, like, genetic ceiling for muscle growth and then started taking creatine, like, yeah, like, your, your total muscle mass might increase a little bit just due to, again, the creatine and associated water. Mm-hmm. But that's not really what people are talking about when they're asking about building muscle. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I kind of think that it just increases the rates of gains and probably doesn't affect the ceiling all that much. Although, like, I'm I'm sympathetic to, to the idea that, like, maybe it could around around the fringes. Like, if it's suppressing myostatin a little bit, Maybe you can fuse a couple more myonuclei than you would have otherwise. Maybe the fiber can then get a little bit bigger than it would have otherwise. Um, you know, so I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that that it could potentially ever so slightly raise that ceiling of what you can achieve, but I am doubtful that it would have a particularly large effect if it has an effect at all. Okay, uh, next question from Chris Bortle. Hi, Greg and Lindsay. My question is about creatine. There's a lot of different types on the market. You can buy creatine monohydrate, creatine nitrate, creatine phosphate, and all the others. I know creatine monohydrate is the most studied, but is there any worth in buying any of the other forms? Linz, what have, what have you heard about other forms of creatine, just like non-monohydrate forms of creatine? So the thing that I've heard about monohydrate specifically is that you need to drink it pretty soon after you mix it with water and that other forms of creatine that you can buy don't have that limiter. And so there might be ones that do slightly better um, if you need to kind of like mix them in something long before you're actually going to drink it. But that's really all I know. Hmm. You know, so that that actually isn't one of the things that I had heard about other forms of creatine, but that, that does make sense. Um, the type of creatine that you will sometimes see in beverages, like that, that you would buy at the gas station, yeah. that like caffeinated stuff that also has a little bit of creatine, which I'll also note, like those are, those are a scam, I think, because <laughs> like, they have maybe a hundred milligrams of creatine in them, like not not enough to really do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but the version of creatine that you'll sometimes see in them is crealkaline, uh, which I assume means that it's creatine bounded to something that would like make the solution slightly more alkaline. And so, yeah, creatine does uh, uh, break down to creatinine in solution, and the rate at which that reaction occurs is dependent on temperature and pH. So Mm -hmm. if something is cold and in a basic environment, so like the opposite of acidic, uh, the rate of creatine breakdown to creatinine will be slower. And if it's hotter or in a more acidic environment, the rate will be faster. Um, So yeah, like if if you're just mixing it in water, I, I don't have the references in front of me right now, but like I think you can leave creatine in water at room temperature for like several hours and like Mm. some breakdown will occur but like in excess of 90 percent of the creatine will still be in there Mm -hmm. um but yeah like if if you uh mixed it in something acidic like orange juice or coffee like you would need to drink it right away okay um 
or like if you wanted to leave it for like days and days at a time yeah um so yeah that that does kind of make sense and i mean that's something that i read somewhere but i don't know where so it could be wrong it may have been some sales copy (laughs) but yeah so like like that makes a little bit of sense like uh, a creatine that is bound to something that it would dissociate from in solution and the the thing itself would be kind of basic to uh reduce rates of creatine breakdown like i i I can see that again like probably not relevant to most people but like i i I get where that's coming from okay um so yeah most of the other forms of creatine that i'm aware of at least are mostly marketed based on claims about solubility Mm -hmm. so uh creatine I, I believe needs to dissolve into solution for it to be absorbed. Mm. Um, and also if it doesn't go into solution, it's more likely to cause like GI distress. Oh yeah. And, and so you can't upset. like dry scoop it like some people like to do. I mean, I dry scoop it. Here's, <laughs> okay. Here's the thing. Like uh, I dry scoop it and then swish it around in my mouth with liquid. Like a, there's some mechanical agitation there. And also like, I think that I think that a lot of the concern about that is a little overblown because mm-hmm. the thing is it gets into your small intestine. It's wet in there. Like even if <laughs> even if famously it's, it is every cells need to be wet. Yeah. And your yeah, your your intestines are are wet. Like they they have plenty of liquid in them. Great. So yeah, even if creatine isn't in solution when it actually makes it to your small intestine, it will have probably gone into solution at some point as it's traveling along the like extremely long small intestine and then it can get absorbed so yeah like i i think a lot of that is overblown but Mm -hmm. yeah that is a a common thing that uh like alternate forms of creatine are marketed for like improved solubility um and so yeah my general take is that if you get like gi issues when using creatine monohydrate I think it's probably worth experimenting with alternate forms of creatine that maybe have a little bit better solubility. Like it yeah, might, it might make sense. your tummy a little bit happier. You can also just use plain creatine monohydrate, but uh, the, the marketing term is micronized creatine, um, which is literally just creatine monohydrate that they process to make like the little granules slightly smaller. Cause like, like a lot of chemicals, um, creatine will just like spontaneously form little crystals mm-hmm. as you kind of, so it's it's in solution as they're processing it, and then they dry it out, and like some little crystals will form. And so my, micronized creatine is essentially they just break up those crystals, so they're a lot smaller and go into solution easier. Um, and so yeah, like I I think probably micronized creatine is what I would go with first if you get some tummy issues, and then if you want to try some of the other forms of creatine, go for it. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I don't think it's going to have like a meaningful effect on on the ergogenic properties of creatine because like the the peak muscle concentrations it's like 160 millimoles per kilogram of dry mass alternate forms of creatine that i i am not aware of a way that would allow allow them to like exceed that limit and help you reach muscle concentrations of creatine that can't be achieved with monohydrate yeah but yeah like if if you want to try them out for for tummy issues go for it Okay, uh, last question from Ali Shah. Hey, just super quick question. Um, I was just wondering if creatine and caffeine has an inhibitory effect on each other. 
meaning should I have to pick one or the other? Um, can I not drink a cup of tea if I take creatine or should I space them out by like a couple hours or something? Does it even matter? Can I take it together? Thanks. Uh, Linz, have, have you heard about this at all? Like the I definitely have heard of the idea that you shouldn't mix creatine and caffeine. And I think that the reason that I've heard you shouldn't do that is that it can increase the likelihood of gastrointestinal issues. Mm -hmm. But I don't know much about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think you probably got that from Eric's creatine guide. Probably. From, That's where I know most back. things from about creatine from. Yep. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, so there was a study by Vanderberg and colleagues from 1996 um, that that is is what got people thinking about this for the first time uh essentially it was it was looking at the effects of creatine and caffeine supplementation on knee extension torque and i don't have this study pulled up in front of me and i didn't review it again before recording this episode but i, I think i remember and if i'm wrong about this i'm close enough whatever okay. don't sue me um <laughs> But so if, if memory serves, creatine increased knee extension torque, caffeine increased knee extension torque, mm -hmm. taking both creatine and caffeine together did not increase knee extension torque. Oh. So that got people thinking like, maybe they're inhibitory. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe it's just a reasonably small study that just had like a false null. You know, like that's also a possibility. Yeah. And the thing is like, there haven't, there haven't been a ton of studies since then that um, that have looked at this topic, but there was one by Hespel in 2002 looking at muscle re relaxation times, suggesting that creatine and caffeine have different effects on muscle relaxation times. Like one of them increases it, one of them decreases it. So like maybe they're at odds there. What does um, muscle relaxation time mean? So when... For your muscles to contract, uh, your there, there's there's a stimulus coming from a motor nerve mm -hmm. that, if it's sufficient, it causes a, a depolarization wave to go down the the membrane of the muscle fiber. That causes release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which then allows actin to to bind to myosin because uh, it moves the troponin off of <laughs> off of the binding sites and. Uh, the the depolarization wave is driven by uh, sodium flowing into the cell, calcium coming back, or or uh, uh, potassium flowing out, and basically like for all of that to happen again, mm -hmm. you need to like let everything come back to baseline a little bit. You need to pump okay. potassium back in. You need to pump sodium out. You need to resequester some of the calcium, and like. We're we're talking things that happen on like yeah like sub millisecond levels, um, but yeah. So in, in general, like uh, like fast twitch muscle fibers have like faster muscle relaxation times, and mm -hmm. the faster the relaxation time is, the sooner the muscle can be or the fiber can be re-stimulated and like have another bout of contraction. Um, anyway, whatever doesn't matter. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, so there, there was like another study by Harris in 2005 looking at knee extension torque, uh, 
Trexler himself, Eric Trexler, as part of his master's uh, research, I believe, um, did did a study on caffeine, creatine, and the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then there was a more recent study by Pakulak in uh, 2021. Mm-hmm. That was the only longitudinal study of the bunch. Um, and es- essentially, like, it's this weird place where like the different effects on relaxation time like that doesn't seem to be like a strong enough mechanism to like really explain what's going on um but like most of these studies do kind of suggest an inhibitory effect so like in the uh, Vandenberg study the Hespel study the Harris study and the Pakulak study um creatine on its own seemed to work. Mm-hmm. So like in the three acute studies, it, it improved measures of performance. Um, in the Pakalak study, which was a longitudinal study, it caused an increase in knee extensor thickness. But in all five of these studies, the combination of creatine and caffeine didn't quote unquote work. Um, like sometimes the direct comparison to just creatine was significant. Sometimes it was non-significant, but creatine plus caffeine didn't outperform placebo in any of these studies, which is, which is like fucking weird. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to like, I I don't consider myself like a supplement expert guy, Mm -hmm. but when you talk to supplement expert guys or gals, um, that's very inclusive of you. Thank you. They, they exist. Uh, they will largely say, ah, don't worry about this. Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's no, like, strong me- mechanistic accounting for why this would be the case. Um, we, we can't think of a good reason, like, a strong enough reason to suspect that creatine and caffeine would be directly inhibitory. But the, bo- the, the admittedly small body of research on the topic... Mm-hmm. does suggest that there might be inhibitory effects here. Mm-hmm. But again, like it's a small body of research yeah. and there's not much looking into like mechanistic effects. And for all of the things being studied, you would expect creatine and caffeine both to have relatively small effects on the outcomes being being discussed. Mm-hmm. And so like, who knows? Like maybe, maybe it is inhibitory. Maybe it isn't. Uh, it, Eric, proposed in his creatine guide that um if if there is something that looks like an inhibitory effect it might just be like gi discomfort from people taking creatine and caffeine at the same time Mm -hmm. and if that's the case like use caffeine in the morning take creatine in the afternoon everything should be fine yeah but i mean it is also possible that there is some sort of like direct inhibitory effect and just like the mechanisms haven't been discovered yet Mm -hmm. um just a quick thing about like figuring out dosing. You don't need to take creatine like right before a workout for it to be effective for the workout, right? Like it's just kind of getting it into your system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- so if you wanted to like just take your creatine in the morning and you're going to work out in the afternoon and you want to take caffeine before your workout, it yeah. seems like that would work. Yeah. That that would also be fine. Uh, and that is worth, I think, like briefly touching on a okay. little bit. Um so we, we do sometimes get questions about like creatine dosing, like should you split it into multiple doses? When okay. should you take yeah. it? Should you take it with other things? Whatever. Um, and for like like for for the most part, it doesn't really matter. But you 
it could matter to you if you're trying to do everything like quote unquote optimally. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, yeah, it's it's what you're getting at. Like you're just trying to fully saturate your muscle creatine levels. Yeah. And when you do that, you're good. Like the the whether or not you have like a fresh batch of creatine in your system <laughs> is irrelevant. Yeah. Like you reach that point of saturation, you're good to go. Um, when you take creatine will influence that a little bit. So creatine uptake into the muscle is a little bit greater after a workout than it would be at other times in the day. Mm. So like, that, again, like that doesn't matter. Like if, if for most people, most of the time, yeah. if you're, if you've been taking it for months and you already have saturated muscle creatine levels, whether you take it after a workout or at any other point in time is completely irrelevant to you. And if you're just starting to take creatine and you're trying to like saturate your muscle creatine levels, uh, taking it after a workout might mean that you reach like saturation at three and a half weeks instead of four. Like we're, we're, and again, if you're, if you're going to be taking it for months to years, which, which you should like, that's, it's, it's good for you. Yeah. Um, if, if you're going to be taking it for months to years, like taking three extra days to reach full saturation, irrelevant, Mm -hmm. but like, technically sure if you're just starting to take it after a workout is the best time to take it but again don't fucking worry about that (laughs) um and then second thing is is similar with uh it's a similar type of deal for taking creatine with other stuff Mm -hmm. so creatine absorption and muscle creatine uptake seems to be a little bit greater if you consume it with some carbohydrate instead of just by itself and th- those two things are probably related as well. Like both, like like exercise kind of primes muscles to just absorb nutrients um, and consuming some carbohydrate, you get like insulin effects, kind of prime cells to absorb stuff. And so like, yeah, it, like consuming creatine after a workout with a carbohydrate source will probably improve absorption and uptake into the muscles a little bit. Mm-hmm. But once you reach full saturation, who fucking cares? Like, because you're you're saturated yeah. and you will stay saturated yeah. and you're good to go. Um, what, what was the other? Oh, uh, uh, last thing I wanted to note, though, is is like multiple doses per day. Mm-hmm. If you if you get an ouchy tummy when you take creatine, that might be something worth experimenting with. Um, you probably don't need to take it all as like a single bolus. So if you're taking five grams a day and that bothers your tummy, but two or three grams a day doesn't, or like two or three grams in a single dose doesn't, mm-hmm. you could split it into two doses. You could yeah. split it into three doses. That's totally fine. Nice. Uh, and if you're doing a loading phase, which again, you you don't need to do, but if you want to, um, I would definitely recommend splitting a loading phase into multiple doses mm-hmm. because even if a maintenance dose of creatine doesn't give you an upset tummy, like 25 grams at once, a lot. there's a decent chance it will. So yeah, yeah you, you probably should split that into multiple doses. Um, but yeah, so so just to just to circle back to to the question that we're directly answering about mm-hmm. different forms of creatine, just just reiterating, cre- creatine monohydrate will fully saturate your muscle creatine levels. Mm-hmm. That is ultimately what you're trying to accomplish. Alternate forms of creatine, as far as we know, don't let you achieve higher levels of total creatine concentrations than you can get with just monohydrate. Um, but 
some of them might dissolve a little bit better. Uh, and so if you don't mind the extra cost, because like all of them are more expensive than monohydrate. Mm. If you don't mind the extra cost and you you're, the GI effects of monohydrate are too severe for you and you don't want to split the monohydrate up into multiple doses and you don't just want to take micronized monohydrate, you can experiment with the other kinds of creatine, but like I'm I'm like weakly anti other forms of creatine because I yeah. I do think the the like literal cost outweighs the benefits because they do cost more and the benefits if they exist I think are probably trivial and can probably just be avoided by taking either micronized monohydrate or monohydrate split into multiple doses. Mm-hmm. I think that's good to note. That was the prior question. The question we were on was creatine and caffeine. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, I... That's okay. I mean, I, I, I think I that, was, I was at. that was a great summary for the last question. Do you want to give a creatine and caffeine summary, or do you feel like we've covered that? Uh, creatine and caffeine summary is basically like, there's... <laughs> there's not a great reason to think they would be inhibitory, except for all of the research. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's also not enough research to be like super confident about it yeah um so i i think it's one of those things where it's like if you wanted to be like extremely better safe than sorry about it and say hey i'm going to choose whether i'm taking caffeine or creatine but not both Mm -hmm. i i would not begrudge you that um i i kind of think that if if there is an effect, it is probably related to like acute, like acute effects of co-ingestion, mm-hmm. whether that be upset tummies or something else. Yeah. Was that what the studies, like, was that the design for the studies? They were taking creatine and caffeine together right before a workout. Um, I mean, I would guess that's probably what they were doing. I, yeah, I, I haven't looked into this in a while or maybe ever i suspect they were though yeah because like you're going to like you're going to give people the caffeine before their workouts yes and if you're already like supervising the supplement right. administration you you're may not as gonna well like just have them come in the, the morning and take it yeah yeah um so yeah like i don't know i it's 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 one of those things where like i i really just don't see a strong reason why they should be inhibitory but mm-hmm. like the research at this point suggests that they might be, but mm-hmm. doesn't really provide a reason why. So yeah, like if, if you want to be super conservative about it and only take one or the other, I get where you're coming from. I do kind of suspect, though, that if you just take them at different times, you're you're probably going to be good. Nice. Um, but I'm not like super confident in that. That's okay. Cool. Uh, that's all I got on creatine yeah, for this episode. That's it. Thanks for listening. Do you have anything else you want to discuss before we wrap up? I do not. Perfect. Uh, so thank you for listening to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We we love and appreciate you all. Um, once again, if you like the show, uh, like and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It does help the show a lot. And if you would like your questions to be answered on a future episode, uh, send us those voice clips 60 seconds or less to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. And until next week, hope you have a good one. Two weeks. Uh, Until two weeks from now, uh, hope you have a good one. Have, Have a great fortnight. Yes.